Hey there, art lovers. Mike Hendley here, and I'm excited to welcome you to the Drawing Inspiration Podcast. In each episode, I'll be bringing you along on my journey as I explore what it means to be an artist. But don't worry, it's not just going to be me talking about my favorite pencils and sketchbooks the whole time. I'll also be chatting with other talented artists about their experiences and sharing some of my own insights and reflections on my art journey. So come on in, get comfortable, and let's get inspired together. Episode 91, The Art of Storytelling with Jared Cullum. Comics, writing, watercolor, and plein air painting. Hi everyone, and welcome to 2023. I hope you enjoyed a little time off in the last few weeks. I'm going to go through a few quick updates here. We've got a longer episode, so I'll try and keep it short. You know, I had big plans over the holidays about getting things ready for 2023, and I just didn't get to everything I wanted to, so I'm going to spend January planning out my uh, kind of framework for 2023, including picking my theme. So that's why I held back on releasing another episode. I'm not kind of done that process. I may sneak one in between episodes, but we'll see. But I did have a chance to kind of reflect on 2022, and I hope you do the same, looking back at the intentional successes and maybe the unintentional ones, and understanding where you know, are there areas that you can improve? Are there directions that you didn't think about that maybe you need to consider? And trying to be thoughtful about what you're doing in 2023. And that's why, once again, I like going back to a theme, that kind of signpost that you can lean on when you need to uh, redirect and, and make sure that you're on track. You know, reflecting back on 2022, I'm so grateful for people like you listening to my thoughts and conversations with the wonderful creatives that have joined me on this podcast. I'm also so thankful for my Patreon supporters and those on Instagram and Twitter and yes, Mastodon and TikTok and everywhere else. And just being able to feed off each other and and contribute to conversations in different areas around different contexts. And I'm just, I'm, I'm really happy about this creative space I'm in and I'm happy to be part of yours and I, I really am looking forward to what can happen in 2023. I feel like I feel like I'm on the cusp of something here. <laughs> and I don't know if it's just the next piece that I'm working on, but I'm excited. I'm genuinely excited for 2023. And I'm excited about what you're going to be doing and, and sharing. And I'm excited about your successes. And I'd love to hear about them and what you have planned. So please share it with me, whether it's through uh, replying to a post or just send me a message directly. I'm I'm excited. I think we can really do some fun stuff in this space and accomplish the goals that we set. And uh, I'm pretty pretty stoked about this year. I'm also so grateful for the companies that I worked with in 2022. My 2022 started with the announcement that I was joining Pentel Canada as an artist ambassador. And I would have never thought about this kind of thing a few years ago. For them to reach out and ask me to do that, I was just blown away. You know, for me, I'd been using Pentel pencils for years, and it just made sense when they made the offer that I joined them in that capacity with, with some other wonderful artists. And it's been a fantastic relationship, and I hope it continues. They've been wonderful to work with, and uh, this is the kind of thing that I think allows us to kind of leverage our relationships and collaborations to help benefit others, and I'm hopeful that it will continue to, uh, to work in that way. So I also had the chance to collaborate with other companies like Etcher. And we did multiple giveaways last year of their sketchbooks and their greeting cards. And that was incredible. Just never thought about working with a company in Australia and giving me these kind of gifts around the world for other creatives to be able to explore what it means to be an artist. And I also had smaller opportunities with companies like our toolkit and providing a discount to their products and, you know, companies like Golden Paints and 
Steelform sending me their products to take a look at. And I, I just love this opportunity that I get this, you know, get to be exposed to not only people like you and the guests, but also these wonderful companies that are trying to make a place for themselves in this creative space by supplying the tools that we need. So all in all, I'm, I'm really happy with 2022 and I'm really looking forward to 2023. So in the time off, in the holidays, I did do a, a, a bluebird in watercolor and a tamarind monkey. And in both those cases, it was in my Etcher A6 sketchbook. So that's the tiniest sketchbook. It was hot press paper. And I started playing with backgrounds. I started kind of adding a little bit of Payne's gray in one case and some uh, green in the other, just to help set off the whites a little bit more. And it's worked out fairly well. So I'm going to do a little bit more of that, I think, in the future. I did a review of the Steelform Aeon Pencil. And so you can find a link for that in my Instagram. And so I just do a quick summary of what I thought of this interesting pencil with the removable magnetic tips. So you'll have to go there to take a look at it. <laughs> I also put it on my YouTube as a short. I also worked on a secretary bird, which is a really interesting bird. It's like a almost like a blue heron, but it's based in Africa. It's got a face kind of like an eagle. And it stomps snakes with its feet, which is crazy. And so a friend of mine said, you know, at some point I'd maybe ask you to do a secretary bird. And I looked it up and I thought, what a beautiful bird. I just drew its head in pencil. Once again, love pencil. (laughs) I think every third or fourth piece I do is in pencil. And uh, so that was kind of fun. Once again, in um, I think that was in my moleskin sketchbook. I did that one. And then I've been working on this tiger in acrylic. I'm almost done. I've I think I've got another week and then this piece will be complete. I've already gessoed three more panels and so I've gone with these birch panels for the next three pieces. One of them quite large and the other two smaller. Once again with the idea of doing more acrylic work into this year I'd like to do at least 12 pieces this year so that's part of my plan and so I've got those gessoed pieces ready. I'm still going to be doing the watercolor and the gouache and the graphite pencil and the ink But uh, I kind of like this idea of the larger project that sits in the corner of my little studio slash office. And that's something that I kind of get a chance to spend, you know, two or three hours working on. So I'm excited about that. I'm working towards kind of a group of paintings. And uh, that'll be separate once again from all the other stuff that I'm doing with the sketchbooks and the ink and all that kind of stuff. I just, I I really love it all. Um, And I mentioned in the last podcast, I was talking about exploring something I haven't done in like 40 years. And that is wood burning. I actually have a little wood burning set. And so I've got some pieces. I think it's balsam. And so I'm going to be trying wood burning. So I haven't done it yet, but I talked about it and I feel like I should tell you what I was thinking. And I don't really have any big plans except that it's one of those things that, you know, I did it as a kid and got a, a better wood burning kit than like the $15 one or whatever it was that I got as a gift. And uh, so I just want to try it again. And especially with what I've learned in graphite pencil and watercolor and everything else and understanding value and shape and all of that just wondering what i could do with wood burning and so um, that's going to be something i'm going to do hopefully in january and uh, for sure i'm going to share that with you and post it on instagram and, and my website as well so so just a reminder if you ever want to send me a message you can do so through the contact form on my website you can do it through messenger in using instagram or facebook or whatever the case but the other thing that i have is something called SpeakPipe. And that is, if you go to drawinginspiration.fm and you go to the contact page, if you go down and look below the contact form, there is a SpeakPipe option. 
and you can actually send me an audio message. And I noticed that a few of you have used that recently, and I think that's so cool. And so I reply with another audio message, and it's fun. So if you want to reach out and send me an audio message, that's one way to do it. And the reason I mention that is I may leverage this as we get closer to episode 100. It may be soliciting some feedback. Uh, it would be an interesting way to maybe get some of you on the podcast. I encourage you to, to take a look at it and try it out. If you choose not to, it's cool. But I will talk about this and remind people that the SpeakPipe option is there on the contact page of drawinginspiration.fm. So that's it for updates. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, this episode is quite long, and I like to keep them under two hours. But you know, I spoke with Jared, and I told him, I said, I'm going to try and cut this back a little bit. And I tried, and I tried, but there's just so much goodness here. And he's got such a wonderful voice to listen to. We had such an engaging conversation. We explored so many different areas. And I thought about, you know, maybe I should do a two-parter. You know what? It's uh, it's a longer episode, and I am sorry if you find it too long. I added chapters into it. So if your podcast player supports chapters, you can easily kind of move around the chapters. But if you are painting, if you have a long commute, if you're exercising, this is going to be a really enjoyable podcast to listen to. I enjoyed making it. I know that Jared had a great time. And so with that, let's jump into it. My guest this week is first and foremost a storyteller. He is also an artist, teacher, YouTuber, and so much more. His watercolor and gouache work have inspired me to create, and his plein air work have reminded me that I need to get out more. He has worked hard to get where he is through reading, research, and regular practice. He has not only worked with properties like Fraggle Rock and Labyrinth, but has also launched his own two graphic novels and is working on a third. He offers courses online and provides training and instruction through YouTube as well. To talk about his creative journey, I welcome to the Drawing Inspiration podcast, Jared Cullum. Hi, Jared. How are you? Hi, I'm terrific. I'm glad to uh, to have you on. I've been watching your work for quite a while. It's an honor to be on it. Like I, I was saying earlier, I'm a, a big fan of the podcast. I really uh, enjoy the interviews, and I, I they're they're really good and they're very practical you got a lot of really good advice you, you get uh, out of people and they're also really inspiring so uh it's an honor and i'm just excited to be here well thank you thanks for coming on it's been exciting watching your work and seeing your journey and looking at the stuff that you're posting on instagram the videos you do on youtube the books you've put out we're going to get to all of that in this conversation and i'm excited to talk about gouache and watercolor and all of that stuff sure so i think the listener is going to be really kind of stoked about hearing about your journey and and where you are now and all the stuff that you're into we talked earlier off mike that uh, you know it's hard to kind of define ourselves sometimes and people don't realize we do this other thing and they know sure. us for that thing but not this thing yeah so we'll get into that as well i always like to start with understanding where people come from as a child, was creativity always with you? Was that something that you were interested in or curious about when you were quite young? That's a great question. I honestly, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't. Um, I think uh, I always wanted to tell stories. I think if I look back now, of course, in retrospect, the general through line is that I was always interested in telling stories and uh, in some way. I didn't, I was never really talented though, and I didn't really have any skill. And so art, although I wanted desperately for it to be my kind of outlet and something that I did, I was never very good at it. So it was part of my life, but it wasn't like a big part of my life in that I, I wanted to draw really well. And I felt is the only thing I ever felt competitive with. I wanted to feel like I could draw well, but I, uh, 
was never very talented. I never got very good at it. And so uh, I, in, in, I guess about, you know, maybe middle school, I would want to tell stories. So I would have binders of these little stick figure comics because that was about all I could do was stick figures. And so I would do stuff with those, try to do little stories because um, I couldn't really draw anything else but stick figures. So I did that for a while. And then I had been vocal about my interest in pursuing art, but everybody who, you know, generally loved me told me, with out of love that it was not a good idea <laughs> that it was pretty clear that I was not going to get uh, anywhere with it and so uh, people gingerly kind of tried to redirect me and I felt like there was no future in it um, and that uh, you know that I just felt like I wasn't ever gonna if I couldn't draw I didn't think there was going to be any uh, point in trying and so I about 16 I, I just sort of gave up 15 or 16 I uh, quit doing art altogether and stopped for a long time and it wasn't until I was uh, 26 that I started actually drawing and just became starved or, or just ver you know hungry to grow and it became all I thought about and all I did and and I still feel that same way every day you know waking up wanting to draw I go to bed thinking about drawing or running you know lighting scenarios in my heads for stories and that kind of thing and I feel more in my element now but it was uh, not until I was about 26 that I started drawing uh, and, and art became a big part of my life. Did you go to school in something else and come back to art? Or how did that happen for you? Because 26, if you're saying that's when you really got into drawing, by that time we're probably done sure. our whole secondary kind of education. Yeah. I, um, I, so I wanted to do something creative. And it didn't seem like art, drawing art, illustration type things, was a part of that sort of scope for me. So I thought graphic design felt like it was sort of art adjacent that I could make money and not be destitute, but still have something to do that's remotely creative. So I went to school for graphic design and I, I enjoyed it. I was never very good at it either. I've never had any sort of <laughs> talent <laughs> or skill. <laughs> I still would argue that I don't, but I, I did go to school for graphic design. I did at least try abysmally to, to do graphic design. And I, I didn't get very far with it. I, I mean, I worked for a while. I was working for a beer company. So after school, I worked for a beer company and I did um, mostly like ancillary design stuff, working on uh, advertisements and stuff. So, which I, w I was fine doing it. It wasn't that I, I wasn't unhappy and I, and I, I love the field, but I, I don't think I was ever as passionate in it as I, I was about drawing. And so when drawing kind of was reintroduced to me by a friend who was like basically like you talk about drawing and you're interested in drawing why don't you just draw because it had never occurred to me that you could just draw and and not have some sort of end goal to it then then i i used to like i was working in basically like a cubicle by myself on a, on a wing of the building all alone so i would sit with my desk the pullout desk and i had like a sketchbook and i would go to the library and i'd get all the books on art i could get and i would just every lunch break i would go in early and I would draw and I would, every lunch break, I would pull the drawer out and draw as much as I could and then uh, go home and draw. And But it, it uh, yeah, I worked for a while as a graphic designer. I wanted to, uh, I think, understand about the drawing and, and w w how did that evolve for you? Because you end up in doing cartoon work. So how do, sure. you, how do you bridge that gap between graphic design drawing a little bit and then getting into cartoon work? Uh, well, I think one of the things that has been a through line since childhood is that I have always been in, in love with animation and with cartoons. So I did 
growing up, I was obsessed with like old Disney movies. So like Robin Hood and 101 Dalmatians and Jungle Book. And I used to, I would always flip out, especially in the Xerox era Disney when they um, were not as clean and precise. And so like in 101 Dalmatians and, and Robin Hood, for example, every once in a while, it, because of the Xerox method where they were not cleaning it up as much, they just would Xerox it darker instead of inking it. Uh, you could see where the cleanup had not erased enough of the foundation. So occasionally you'll see the framework of the character, like the underdrawing. So the circle or the sphere with the crosshairs and all that stuff would just, it'll flash for just a second. And I, when I was a kid, I used to always try to pause it and catch those so that I could try to copy it down. And I used to always be obsessed with acting and animation. And so trying to act out scenes from movies and, and animated films. So Disney films and how Miyazaki movies and, and so I, I, I think I was always drawn to that. And then when I got into drawing, I didn't necessarily want to do that specifically. I think what I had initially intended to do was kind of autobio type. At the time, there was a lot of people doing autobio stuff. Uh, this is like 2006 or whatever. And a lot of people were doing autobio stuff. And I got really into that. And I really wanted to ink. So my friend had given me a bunch of black and white comics. And so I read those and I was really fascinated by them. And I, that's all I wanted to do. I wanted to learn how to draw and I wanted to ink those. I figured if I do something, if I end up somewhere in this world, I want to ink stuff. So I got very into pursuing that and wanting to get good at that. So I would draw these cartoons and I thought it would be good to set a deadline for myself. So I started doing what, like what's essentially was a web comic, which a lot of people had at the time and, and less people have now, I feel like, or at least it's more consolidated. Mm -hmm. But at the time, a lot of people were doing these web comics. And so I started one of those. So I'd have a deadline and they were just these little like autobio kind of short stories. So I was doing that for a long time and I really just wanted to be an inker and get good at it. And that's all I wanted. And so I would practice and I would study and then I did a workshop at this school in Florida and they had a comics library and in the comics library, they had a French section and in the French section, there was a couple artists who were using watercolor and one in particular was this guy, Louis Trondheim. And so I, I, I read Louis Trondheim's books. He has these little books called the little nothings. They're like just day in the life type stories from his life. And he, he does like him and all of the people in his life as anthropomorphic animals and but he'll color them with watercolor and they're just straightforward color. They're not, I don't know how to describe the difference, but they're, they're not like, uh, he's not trying to like portray light necessarily, unless incidentally, occasionally there'll be these really beautiful establishing shots. But for the most part, it's just like, if there's a green shirt, it's green. You know, if there's a right, whatever, they're just colored essentially. Um, and so I thought that's looks really cool. I like the kind of subtle look of that. So I was like, maybe I'll get a watercolor set and I'll just try to dip my toe in that world. And I fell into the ocean. Like I absolutely, <laughs> I tried it and I, it was just things like, it was like things came into focus. I just became obsessed with watercolor. And so I got really into uh, wanting to get better at watercolor. So I was just collecting everything I could to get better at watercolor. I would go to the library and get all of the large books of prints of painters and I would go copy them in sketchbooks, little small master studies and just trying to find any kind of resource I could at the time too, there was less stuff. Like now there's so many subscription schools and Patreon and people putting information out there. There was not as much stuff, but there was enough that I could train myself to a degree 
and I got really into studying the watercolor. I felt a little like I was hindered though. And I was doing a lot of these short stories that are essentially like, they're called mini comics. They're just like 16 to 20 page short stories. I would take, I would take to conventions and try to sell for like a dollar or trade with friends or whatever. So I was doing a lot of those and I knew eventually I wanted to bridge the gap from these little short stories to a bigger story. But I also felt like I was encumbered by my lack of skill. I don't want to like ascribe, you know, (laughs) morality to it by saying it was bad or good or whatever, but I have lacked drafting skill in a huge way. I had not gotten much further than the stick figures I was drawing as a kid. So I had stumbled across this artist named Cyril Pedroza and I read the book Portugal, which was, it absolutely changed my life. And one of the, a couple of takeaways from it was that one, he had used kind of watercolor in the layering. So there was an element of color as storytelling tool, which blew my mind. And then I started seeing that kind of popping up everywhere and in other stuff that I was interested in. And he also, it was, you know, his, his drafting skill, he's just so good. And it turned out he was a Disney animator and so I think it like that was part of why it appealed to me. And one of the biggest takeaways was that it was in French and the only copy available was in French. And I was able to read it without reading it because the acting was so good. The facial expressions were so good. You could see and the, you know, the weather or the lighting was so good. You could you could read the story without reading exactly what people were saying. And so that changed my life. And I became obsessed with, I, I want to get to that level or at least shoot for that. And so I stopped doing the webcomic and I went all in on drawing and just sort of did the classical approach to drawing. I have a couple exercises that I started doing every day. And, you know, I was doing like figure drawing every single day. I would do like 20 to 30 figures every single day. I would do a bunch of stuff to try to get better at drawing. And uh, I got obsessed with art history and started really studying art history. So reading every textbook I could find from the library and finding particular schools of art or particular parts of history that I became obsessed with and uh, would get every book on people like Barrett Morisot or Manet or uh, people, especially from that era of the late 1800s and just copying every painting they ever did, studying the reason for every painting and the story behind every painting and the history behind it and setting it in uh, natural in the history of the world. So, you know, in that case, French history and Mm -hmm. what was going on at the time. And that greatly influenced my, my thinking and my art. And so that was kind of my route to watercolor. I ended up doing watercolor that way. I became obsessed with, uh, you know, Winslow Homer and John Singer Sargent and these great painters who Andrew Wyeth, these Titans of watercolor and then, uh, modern watercolor artists too. So people who I became really interested in and then studying from and, that's kind of what led me to where I was, you know, or where I am rather. Sorry. Somebody's listening to this and thinking, wow, I, some of these names I'm not familiar with this in this book I've not heard of. So I just wanted to take this opportunity to remind people that I put together really good show notes. So don't right. worry about rewinding and taking note. Just check out the show notes. I will sure. link to everything that Jared's mentioned as a matter of names and books. Sure. If you're interested in Portugal, it's in English now. You can get it in English now. You couldn't at the time. You can get all of his books in English now. NBM put them all out in English. So Equinox in Portugal and Three Shadows, a bunch of other. Ciro Pedroza is, is, is that artist I was talking about. And Louis Trondheim. I will link to those and uh, people can uh, track it down. And it's so funny, like when we started talking, story comes up so much. And I, I would be surprised that the word story is not in the show title when we finish this. Sure. Um, because I, 
I, I see that obviously with the books that you've done and the, the work that you're talking about, but I also see it just in, in the plein air stuff that you're doing, um, th- that you are trying to tell a story of that moment in time. And I've always been impressed with artists that when I look at their work, and, and I've said this to other artists as well, uh, you know, James Gurney does a great job of this. When you look at a piece, it, it's more than the moment in time. You, you get a feeling for what was happening minutes before that and minutes after that. You feel that in some ways it, it's just rotating back and forth and you don't feel that you're limited to that uh, millisecond when that, when that painting was done, that it represents things. You can, the car that's parked, the person that you see off to the side, you can almost see action in that. You can get mm-hmm. a sense of where that came from and where it ended up. And uh, I really love that in your pieces. There's some, some, some type of dynamic feeling in looking at your work that I feel Thanks. that it is that there's more to it. And uh, it, it's really hard to capture that. And I'm not sure if it can be taught. I think that if it could be taught, you could probably teach it. But, <laughs> <laughs> well, thank but you. I, I, I really enjoy looking at your work. And I, I think that's story, like my, my theme for last year was storytelling. And I do think that is so important, whether you're doing a watercolor, oil, acrylic, graphite, anything, right, is, is telling mm-hmm. the story. So to me, it's all story. It's all story, all of it. So to me, I think uh, I think of everything in story. And if I'm teaching a workshop, I find I'm often referring to a plein air painting as the story or this story that I'm trying to tell, uh, because it's all story. There's a lot of crossover uh, between the two. And I think that's part of why what gives me great joy every morning in thinking about what the stuff that I do is that it's it's all the same thing, essentially. So if I'm plein air painting, or drawing cartoons for my day job, it's, it's it's the same thing in that we're trying to take this crazy expanse, this like huge, massive, collective insanity of reality, this depth of tons and tons of colors and tons and tons of complexity and form, and we're trying to boil it down to a simple idea that's digestible and readable. And so cartoons, you know, we're taking that crazy reality and we're creating some sort of a symbol that connects to people. And I think that's how we can connect to, you know, I don't want to sound too woo woo, but the collective consciousness, this sort of thing that connects us all, this sort of um, idea of this collected experience that we all have. There's these crossovers, these moments of crossover that we can all share. And we can find that in, in the case of cartoons and the fact that we're taking a, a symbol and that's how I am communicating to people. And in plein air painting, it's my value and my shapes. I'm taking this crazy complexity of like an old building or, you know, even just a still life of some pots in the sink or whatever. I'm taking this crazy complexity of all these colors and all this stuff that is unfathomably huge. And I'm boiling it down to a simple idea. And I, in my classes, I talk a lot about how we're trying to communicate this story. We're trying to communicate this idea with people in a simple way, because that's how we connect to people. And if I'm trying to talk to you like right now or a person, if I start talking about how, uh, you know, I'm like, I'm sweating and I'm uncomfortable and it's too bright. And I just go on and on. You might sort of zone out and not follow what I'm saying. But if I just say it's hot, you know what I'm trying to say. You understand and you can go there. You can connect to that feeling and you have your own context and story. And everybody has their own history and context of what it means to be hot. And so you bring that to that sensibility and to that idea. And that is a story in itself. So that to me is the value statement in a plein air painting. 
my four values. I think of it as my, my simple idea. These are my four words. It's almost like a poem or like a, a, you know, you're telling a story in just a limited amount of words. And I want those to be precise and concise in a way that connects to people instantly and just teleports them to the moment. So that's for both worlds. But essentially, as I was saying, it's all story, whether I'm drawing a plein air painting or I'm drawing cartoons, that's my goal. And that's what kind of gets me excited. I want to come back to that because I want to get deep into the plein air, but I want to just go back to the cartoon work because you've done work for various organizations, various groups, publishers, and that kind of stuff as well. And Mm -hmm. are you still doing that kind of work or are you really just doing your own? So you're still working? Oh, yeah. When I can. I mean, I I go off and on. I started out essentially doing license work when I got into, well, I mean, I was doing my own short stories. So I was doing my own short stories and I wanted to bridge the gap from, you know, I have these graphic novels that I aspire to and I really loved, but I felt like I couldn't, I couldn't close the loop. Like I could come up with a beginning and a middle over and over again, but I, I couldn't quite have that carry and follow through to get a story that was longer. And as I was working, I started writing a bunch of short stories and then essentially combining them is what made the longer stories but I was pitching them to places and just getting rejected from everybody. So just heaps and heaps of rejection. And, and then eventually my book, uh, Cody got picked up. So Cody was sort of the combination of three short stories that I put together, three different ideas that I changed and put together and I pitched it and pitched it and, and nobody wanted it. And luckily though, I had someone who said, you know, we don't want this, but maybe someone over here might, cause they do stuff like this that looks like this. And he sent it to them. And then they said, we don't want this. We don't like this, but we could maybe use you for this. Or maybe this person could use it. And they passed it on. And eventually it ended up at um, Jim Henson, who also said, we don't want this. But but we could maybe use you for some kids stuff. And so I ended up doing licensed characters for Jim Henson while I was working on Cody. I did um, uh, for Archaea, the publisher Archaea. So I was doing... I did like a Fraggle Rock story and some stuff with other Jim Henson um, characters, Labyrinth and stuff like that. And I've since done stuff. I, I still maintain that relationship. I'm still sort of in the Rolodex there. Uh, and I genuinely love them and I love doing stuff for them. And then I've, I've done some other stuff for Ninja Turtles and Usagi Ojimbo. And I'm always open to doing stuff for that. I'm always excited when they call. Cause that was like a childhood dream <laughs> getting to draw those characters. I'm, I'm always open to do stuff like that, but for the most part, yeah, I'm, I'm doing my own characters and stories. Now I'm not relying so much on those types of contracts as I am trying to do my own independent stories. So uh, anymore, but I'm, I'm always open to doing covers or stories when I can. Do you find it hard balancing kind of that uh, client work with all the other personal projects you have going on? Do you find it hard prioritizing and finding room for it? Or? Uh, well, you know, time is always an issue. Uh, especially because I have two young kids. So it's, it's hard to, it, it, time is always kind of hard to balance, but, um, but at the same time, not really. And and then juggling them all, I don't find it that difficult because kind of going back to what I said about it, it it all being story and, and it all being, it all feels like the same thing to me. I don't really think about one thing as different from the other between the plein air painting or the cartoon stuff. I mean, it looks very different. Yes. Uh, but to me, it, it doesn't feel different when I'm producing it. And then also I don't do anything else. (laughs) So it's not like, Oh boy, I have to stop doing this thing so that I can get some work in. 
I get up and I go to work drawing and painting and then I take a break and I draw and paint and then I relax afterwards by drawing and painting and usually put myself to sleep at night by drawing and painting. I don't have any other skill <laughs> or, <laughs> and I don't have any other, uh, interest. I don't like, uh, do anything but this thing. And, um, I don't know how to do anything but this thing. I, in the same way, I don't really know how, how to stop breathing. Uh, it's just sort of what I do. So I just sort of do this all the time. So, and I think about this all the time. So I have to organize it and I'm not very good at multitasking in that I'm not very good at doing a bunch of little things. I'm very, I'll, I'm good at laser focusing and doing one thing at a time, but usually that's just what I do. I have like a, a big whiteboard over here next to me and it's got my to-do list of things to do. And I just go down the list and I do it and I do it based on how much time I have in the moment. So if I have, you know, an hour or two, I might do more of the sketching stuff or drawing or prep stuff. And if I have more time then I might try to do a full painting. The plain air stuff is the hardest to get time for, unless I'm teaching, because, just because it's hard to, I don't like to go and not be with my kids when I'm with my kids. You know, like if I go to the park, I don't want to wander off. So I try to make sure that I'm focused on them when I'm with them. And so that does make it a little difficult because I don't, I, I mean, my poor children think I don't do anything because I try to not do too much art in front of them because I don't want them to just think that I'm not listening to them or that I don't care. I want to give them a hundred percent hundred percent of the time. So I usually end up doing most of my actual work when they go to bed. So I work overnight basically. And then I wake up super early so that I can, uh, keep working before they're awake and then be with them, uh, as much as possible <laughs> and my wife as much as possible. So, uh, they feel like I'm present and then do the work in between. It's challenging. It's challenging when you've got uh, family and partners and yeah, the house and everything else to deal with and, and fitting in art, um, and it, it feels like it needs a more special spot, uh, this coming from <clears throat> somebody like me who has a highly technical uh, day job and is trying to fit sure. in the art and podcast around all of that. It's, um, it is a challenge, but I feel like it's, if it wasn't, I don't think I'd be interested. Sure, but yeah. It's, it's got to be challenging, right? And, uh, you know, I was going to ask you at some point later on about whether you still kind of sketch or draw in the evenings. And it sounds like, Oh yeah. <laughs> you just wind up and wind down. Right. So I do, I do, uh, constantly. And I have a, a series of exercises that I do that I just do like, um, you know, like almost like a person who would, uh, I don't know enough about sports to make this a good metaphor, but like, uh, how they would have to train and lift weights and stuff in between the actual game. I feel the same about art for me because of, the stuff that I do, I feel like I have to constantly be drawing and, and I, you know, it's not a very, um, satisfying thing to say to people or listeners who might be newer or growing at it, but I feel like at least for me, like the goalpost always moves too. So I, I've never hit a point where I've, I have felt, um, content. And I don't mean that like a negative thing. That sounds like I'm being negative. I don't mean to say that like I'm negative, but, uh, mm. I have yet to get to a place where I have had any sort of, uh, I almost said pride in anything I've done, but that sounds terribly <laughs> depressing. I just, I feel like the goalpost always moves. There's always the next thing. And, and there's always that next level that I'm trying to get to with drafting and stuff. So, or making art or watercolor or that kind of thing. So I'm constantly, um, I think that's part of why projects don't bother me too much to move through and get done or juggle between the planar painting, traditional painting or portraiture. And then the cartoon stuff is because, um, I don't, I don't necessarily invest a lot of specific energy or attention to the, 
thing that I'm doing in that as much as I sort of feel like a machine in a sense. And I think that came from my desperation to get to at least have a decent drafting skill. And so I, I, I feel like there is a point at which I made the conscious decision of I'm going to have to do so much that I need to be a machine and I need to not be attached to art. And so I think I've, I've carried that over and I've, in, I've encountered that in people who I've become friends with in, in the animation world. There's a similar kind of attitude where plein air painting is not a lofty experience as much as it's, it's a machine and it's a thing. It's, it's a jog on the treadmill and lifting weights. And we get up and we do five plein air paintings because that's just what we do to, to get to work or whatever. And so I have the similar mentality of sketching and drawing and painting. I've never really shaken that sense that I need to not be attached to anything and that I need to be a machine and I need to just produce, produce, produce and uh, move through those things. So <laughs> I, th I think what's interesting in, in hearing you speak, and I know that s listeners would probably want me to ask you about this because it's come up so many times, and that is this idea of talent. This belief that some people are just talented, and uh, especially when it comes to being creative. And I've I've always kind of disagreed with that, and I've had heard so many artists that just push against it as well. I, I think it's a bit of, of a myth or a fallacy. I'm glad to hear somebody like you who's saying that basically I wasn't talented as a kid, uh, but yeah. I worked against it because I was curious and I like telling stories and I put the time and effort into developing skill. And yeah. I think that that makes it so accessible for people to know that it's not about talent because mm -hmm. people will look at creative work. I've had people do it with my work and they, they look at whatever and they say, oh, I just, I'm just not talented. And it's like, this is nothing to do yeah. with talent. It is really... Um, if, if you want to attribute that to, to talent and be able to walk away from it, that's, that's your decision. But we can all create. We can all be curious. We can all tell story. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I just love hearing you talk about that because, you know, I'm not sure I would have you on if you told me that. <laughs> I, I drew something when I was eight and I, I, I won a <laughs> and international then I was award. Shooing, and then I was shooing away contracts ever since. No, it's been the, quite the opposite. It has just been burrowing out of rejection since childhood, <laughs> barely clinging uh, uh, to the pencil, so to speak, and oftentimes uh, having uh, my very thoughtful and supportive wife pick up my uh, ripped up paper and pencil off the ground and encourage me to not stop. <laughs> so I'm I'm not strong enough on my own, and I'm and I've never had the luxury of talent. I don't understand talent. I don't understand exactly what people are talking about when it comes to talent. I mean, I know there are people who are extremely skilled, but it's just not a luxury I've ever understood because I, it's, uh, uh, it has been something that I, and I, and I tell people constantly when they take my classes or, uh, when I, or they tell me they want to do something is that you, you can do it in the same way you could probably pl play the piano. I think if there's any, if there's anything to talent, it would just be the, it's like a, a an issue of capacity because um, it's the ability to not stop, I think is almost, if anything is likened to talent, it's somehow finding the marriage of passion and just the not being able to stop, which I think for me sort of manifests in <laughs> obsession, which may borderline on some kind of 
you know, disruption in my brain or something, but it's the not being able to stop because I, I have to, I want to get better and I have to, uh, get better, but being able to, I've never really encountered, I mean, I've encountered people who are very, who are very skilled. And, um, I do think that there are people who are very skilled and, but I've never understood the mythos of talent because I've, I've just always, for me, it's, it's, it, I have felt every drawing I have, you know, it, it's, it has been hard <laughs> and it's, uh, you know, and it's not a novel story to run up against uh, rejection and run up against that. You know, I've, I've talked to a lot of people over time who got somewhere and had to run up against uh, just, you know, a lot of rejection and people telling you to stop because you, they don't think, you know, that you have it. And I think it's hard to know, you know, the people who told me in my life, it was, it was with the best intentions and out of love that I should stop doing this thing. But you don't, you don't know how obsessed someone is capable of becoming and that they might go on to obsessively draw for seven hours a day for, you know, 10 years, uh, you know, or more or whatever. And you don't know that. So you can't, I think it's hard to know what to tell people. And I, I think it, that it, it, it is just hard. It's, it's just, it's just the hard work and then the willingness to do it. So if you want to get better, you can, anybody can, and anybody could draw. It's just a matter of, of taking these steps, practicing your scales, you know, and right. developing them. I want to dive deep. Maybe we'll go into uh, the plein air work that you've been doing. Uh, we'll dive deep into that. But I just have a, a quick question around this idea of, you know, just putting the blinders on and focusing and drawing and, and creating and painting with reckless abandon, like just <laughs> just taking it on and doing it. And then which I think is wonderful. We need that kind of childlike, I'm going to do it anyway, because I want to do it. Um, yeah. We need to do more of that kind of stuff. But, I, you know, I think the other part that's that's important in there too is 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 being open to the feedback and the critique. And mm-hmm. can you speak to that a little bit as to, because I, if we're only focusing on our own mind, we're kind of limiting our potential. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you could maybe speak to this opportunity that we have to be able to get to work with, you know, other artists, collaborate, critique, um, and, sure. and build on foundation that way. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a, it's a crucial part. I think a, a, a big part of growth and growing is, you know, we live in a world now that you can sort of pick a mentor, even if they're uh, indirectly a mentor, you know, through the internet, you should always be pursuing the advice and growth from people who you could grow from. So I think, you know, the internet has given everybody this opportunity to connect with, with artists through Instagram and see the type of work that they're doing and get stuff to inspire you to grow. Yeah. And then crit- criticism is important. It's hard to know. Cause I think some, you, I think you do want to have criticism from people that you want to grow from. Cause a lot of times I feel like people, they can give crit. I, I always try to tell people when I'm giving, if I'm asked to give criticism or thoughts on something that, you know, I can only really tell people essentially my own prints in the snow like this is how I got to where I am and it's a different world now than it was five years ago 10 years ago so it's hard like with people who approach me and ask like how do I get published and how do I get into this field or how do I do this and it's it's different now and that I still come from the generation even though it wasn't that long ago of handing a physical work to people and not necessarily trying to email people you know but I I can only tell people like these are my tracks in the snow and my own sort of collection of obsessions and mentors and people that I chased after and pursued, you know, like the painters who I really 
um, took a lot from and, and uh, studied really hard. That's how I get my sort of ideas. And if I'm trying to advise someone, I feel like I'm advising someone on like, well, here's my tracks in the snow, but I don't know what your tracks are. And I don't know how you're going to get where you're going to go. And almost everybody I've talked to who is in a similar position, either playing or painting or in the cartoon world, they all had completely different. Like, there are a lot of crossovers, you know, you certainly deal with a lot of rejection when it comes to art. Anytime you're trying to put something out there, you have to deal with heaps of opinion and rejection, but everybody has their own path. So I think the best thing you can do is be open to not just people who are alive, giving criticism and thoughts, especially people who you respect. I think it is important. I should say too, um, that you have a circle of trust and a circle of friends, mm -hmm. either for painting or for writing. If someone is interested in writing that you're able to give, you're, you're able to show your work to them and have criticism that you respect or criticism that would be honest if you're wanting to grow and you have to, you do have to be open to growth. I think that that's part of what I was talking about with the ab abandon abandonment of attachment, being able to, you know, like I have exercises that uh, help to deal with not being attached to individual art. So seeing art as a collective process, it's almost like gardening. It's like when you're planning a garden, like my wife and I do a lot of gardening and you, it's a constant conversation we have that we're gardening for five years from now, not mm -hmm. necessarily this season. You're sort of trying to set dominoes up. So seeing art and drawings that you're doing, not as like your absolute uh, personhood hinging on this, you know, thing, but seeing it as like, okay, well, this is a step. This is an element to grow. And we will use this to compost and, <laughs> uh, you know, and layer and bring in this uh, element and whatever, and then watch this garden grow over the next five years and continue to be planning for the next so many years. But we garden for so many years in the future, not for right now. I love that. We do a lot of gardening as well. And I never really thought about that. But, you know, getting those pieces in in place and getting yeah. that shrub to a point that you know it's going to be this size and uh, once it gets to a point it's going to generate uh, a beautiful red leaf in the fall yeah and that'll be nice against the back of this blue spruce or you know whatever and then yeah you, know, you, you throw in your annuals in front like exactly or too much acid so how do we you, you get vegetables that have no vegetables. Well, what do we have to do? Okay, well, you know, we'll amend this over time, but we can't. Right. We're not going to have tomatoes this year. <laughs> so I think I art that. is similar. Sometimes you're just not going to have tomatoes. <laughs> so I'm going to try and make a segue here into the um, into your plein air, because when we're gardening, we have a certain set of tools that we rely on in kind of creating that experience. And the same thing with art and with mm -hmm. plein air. And I know you have a wonderful set of tools and you also are exploring kind of breaking that a little bit to kind of develop your own set. So, yeah, you know, the, the listener is, is always going to be like, oh, tell me about something I don't know about or tell me what you're using to know that, because I think it feels good to know that that someone's using the same paint, paper or paint or brush or whatever the case, uh, to feel that you're on the right track. We want to, because sometimes we don't have that circle around us that's telling us you're on the right track. It's feels like it's hard and it feels like it's clunky, but you've got everything you need. You just have sure. to do more. Um, yeah. But maybe you can talk to first about some of the tools, the paper that you use, and then we can talk about the process and some of the work you've done as well. Sure. I think whatever you have sitting next to you is fine. <laughs> like to get going. 
I think, and I only say that because I've taught, I've taught a lot of classes in planar painting and painting in general, and there is a there is always an impulse to go buy the most expensive thing, and nothing breaks my heart more than teaching a planar class, and someone who has never drawn or painted in their life will come in with like fifteen hundred dollars worth of like a brand new etcher bag and the top grade box of what, you know, like a 48 pigment box from Schmincke or something. And I'm always like, Oh no, like, you know, <laughs> like, you know, cause inevitably they hit a wall, they get frustrated because it's not amazing, uh, right out of the gate or, uh, they haven't gotten used to the fact that they have to draw. Um, they didn't realize that was going to be part of it. That comes up a lot when I teach plain air, you know, drawing all of it being drawing, even after you're painting, you're still drawing, you know, things like that. So I always think, you know, and again, I can only really advise on my own tracks in the snow. I don't know, you know, what other people's sort of path would be. Materials were an obsession of mine. Of course, I think that's just a, a, a byproduct of all of it. I think even the listeners are probably are looking at a cases and cases of markers or pigments or whatever that they've accumulated over time. It's just part of the obsession. I think I started out with a Cotman box. I just got at the local craft store and, um, I didn't know any better. And I burned through two of them, which doesn't take that much, but I burned through two of them before I decided to upgrade to a professional box of paint and actually start spending money on that kind of thing. And, um, I think so whatever you have, if you, if you have student grade stuff, I think just use that stuff. And if it's something that connects with you, then maybe you can start replacing piece by piece, these different elements, um, until you get somewhere of, of, uh, you know, professional grade stuff, but it really is, uh, especially if you're getting into planar painting, cause it's so difficult, which I also always tell people, just if you do anything when you're planar painting, it's just be be kind to yourself, be sweet to yourself. Uh, because it's just, it's apart from maybe figure drawing live, it's one of the hardest things you can do because of the weather changing and the light changing every 15 minutes. And, you know, figure might be a little harder because if you mess up a finger, they look like an alien, but, and if you make a tree too big, then it's, you know, it does not the end of the world. Right. But, uh, planar painting is so hard. So I always caution people to just just try to find you, you've got to find joy in the process if you can't find joy in the process then stop because it doesn't get easier and i've been doing it for years <laughs> i mean elements get easier but i it's i think of it think of it like fishing in a sense where it's like sometimes you're going to throw it out and you're just not going to get anything and that's okay i think the best you can do is just glean something so just Hey, I got the right balance light on this thing, or Hey, I actually got the right local color mixed. That is a win for the day. Just take your win and go <laughs> and be happy. Don't, uh, don't pull your hair out. I, I say that because I teach so many people with plein air painting and, and I see the frustration of, of, of people trying and getting so aggravated with it, not going the way they want it to go, but materials do help. And better materials do help, unfortunately, too, which is to say using, you know, as you get into using professional grade stuff, it does help. I just caution people not to think of their individual planar painting as the planar painting. So allow it, especially because you, I mean, another thing too with experience is like, 
you warm up too, which is also aggravating. Like I'll do planar event. I do this planar event with James Gurney every year. And I find I will always go in with a goal and I'll do one painting that I spend like a whole hour and a half on or two hours and it'll be fine. And then I'll have 30 minutes before lunch and I'll just run something off in 30 minutes. And that will be the thing that people go, Oh, look, <laughs> you know, and no one will look at the other one that I would like detailed the whatever all the architecture you know people are like oh you know it's fine there is an element of luck in the same way fishing has an element of luck there is an element of uh, that and, and that you 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 need to be kind to yourself always be kind to yourself be sweet to yourself um but materials i i use uh i have ended up building it's i think it's just sort of an extension of my general process and obsession and always thinking about it as i am always thinking about how I can make it better or what I can use that would be better. And so I have for plain air painting, I've made a lot of the materials that I use incidentally, just out of my own obsession. I don't think that that is important for people to do. I, I'm, I'm not particularly skilled at making things or building things, but I am, uh, I do have a brain that obsesses to a point that won't let me sleep without trying and trying to get better at something. And so I have over time developed, like I build paint boxes for fun and I really enjoy it. And that is my own sort of side personal passion and fascination. And that I became obsessed with the history of watercolor palettes and paint boxes and how people used to carry paint and mussels or oyster shells and then pig's bladders. And, um, eventually there were these craftsmen who were making these boxes out of tin and in the UK and people would seek them out for these rare boxes. I've actually had the opportunity to re refurbish and rebuild some of these. They're extremely expensive, stupidly expensive boxes. <laughs> and I met a lady who had they're they're put together with silver solder that melts that at like well I don't remember it's like four or five hundred degrees. And she wanted it refurbished, so she took it to a powder coating shop. And powder coating hardens at nine hundred degrees. So the powder coater had no idea. It was just this old piece of metal so he put it in the thing and it just melted <laughs> it's, oh, it's no. like I, I, it's like a two thousand three thousand dollar box oh, and wow. so she contacted me because she was she had tried a bunch of people and i was able to make a uh, enough of a wood jig that i could get it back together it was a good experience uh for practice but um you know so those those boxes are so hard to find and a lot of them were made out of tin and those last a long time and they started using tin alloys it had bits of iron in it so they would rust so most of those are very difficult to find because they're all rusted out and rotted. And then, of course, in the with plastic, uh, well, with the industrial age, everything started becoming stamped. And then plastic came along and sort of took over everything, you know. So this there's this ancient, ancient being 18, late 1800s <laughs> craft of of hand forming these weird little boxes. And I, I, um, that's sort of a obsession of mine is, is out of fun, just building these little boxes out of metal and out of brass. Cause it doesn't corrode. And then I, I like to build pochade boxes. I'm kind of always trying to think of how I can better the tools that I have. So the pochade, pochade box, I don't know if I'm saying that right. I never say anything right <laughs> when it comes to, uh, trying to use, I, I, and I'll sound dumb, even dumber if I, uh, try, but, uh, you know, sketchbox. I have built one out of an old wood briefcase now that I like because I can store everything in it and then it folds out. Mm -hmm. But all that stuff is not necessary. You know, you could use a, a ceramic plate for a palette and uh, John Singer Sargent could have used his palm 
and still produced a John Singer Sargent. So it doesn't really matter that end of stuff, the palette, the box, the whatever. But the stuff that does matter is, the, you know, the paper. I use um, Arches, 140 pound. I, f- I do find if you can get past the fear of the fact that it is expensive and so it's hard to burn, but you've got to do it. So I think probably the best thing to do is like Arches is arches is a uh you can get arches at like local craft shops that usually have like we have michael's here and they usually have a half off coupon once a week or whatever if you get a pad of arches you can razor blade it in half take that to a print shop and they'll bind it for you that's the absolute best sketchbook you could have and um in terms of premium paper if you're gonna sketch with the best and are you using cold press the arches cold press is what you're using okay I use, I do a lot of gouache painting too. And I use hot press for that because I just find it layers better on hot press. Although I do know people, I have friends who also do gouache still lifes and paintings and they use cold press. So I don't, it's not that you can't, I found it absorbed it too much. And with, with watercolor, I found the hot press didn't absorb it enough. The cold press absorbs it really well. I like rough too, occasionally for fun. Um, it's just, I, I, you don't have as much control over it. So, which is good in, in, in its own way. It's just like a different tool, but I use, for the most part, I use arches cause it's the most accessible. I think Saunders might be my favorite Saunders Waterford from the UK, St. Cuthbert's mill. It is like arches, but maybe a bit softer. And, um, that paper is great. I love that stuff. It's very expensive here though. And unless you're ordering it, sometimes they'll bulk order it from, um, Jackson's in the UK. And, uh, it's not quite so bad that way, but arches is the most accessible, the best I can get. So that's usually what I use is arches. All my books I do with arches, 140 pound cold press. Interesting. Yeah. I've, um, I would agree like a good, if you're going to spend your money, a good cold press paper is, yeah. is a good foundation. Uh, it, it kind of sucks a little bit, but it, there yeah. is a big difference. I've tried a few and I'm, I probably do 70%, maybe 80% of my work on hot press, uh, just because I, I want to control it more coming from kind of a graphic sure. background. But when I use cold press, the um, the the arches is, is brilliant. The stuff that's in the etcher sketchbooks is nice as well. Like they you are can nice. feel a good cold press paper, right? Like it is. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It feels like, I, I, yeah, it's there's something special about that. Uh, I've like it, it's probably even worth trying a really cheap piece of watercolor cold press paper mm-hmm. and and then get some good arches stuff and you will see the difference and and on that point like the um i just got a sketchbook from um that i that was hand built by uh, will bailey in the U- in the uk and he will do uh he will i think he uses saunders so you can use saunders or the nice. fabriano uh, nice. so i got a fabriano hot press uh so that's the paper that's in it uh, what's his name get, uh, will bailey I need to look him up. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, if you are obsessed about building your sketchbooks, he has a series of YouTube videos on how he builds a sketchbook. So you can actually watch his videos and make your own sketchbook. But uh, you could also do what I did, and that is just buy one. And so if you ever see Dina Brodsky with her uh, work that she does, uh, that's what she's using most of the time is one of the books that he built. Very uh, cool. I, and we can talk about this later, but I haven't put anything in it yet because I'm trying to think about what's my first piece going to be in this new book. Yeah, be careful. <laughs> you should just flip to the middle and ruin it. That's, I think, yeah. the best thing you can do. 
then it's not so precious. I, you know, honestly though, about sketchbooks, and this is for the listeners and maybe people who, who haven't spent a lot of time yet who are interested in spending time or maybe have encountered this, but going back to my own sort of tracks in the snow, mm-hmm. I, um, I, but I did, I did buy a very nice pad of, um, arches and I did the same with gouache. I bought the best I could buy of it. And then I sat and stared at it for eight months because, and then I finally did a painting and I tried to do too big, too much, too fast. It, I felt like it looked abysmal and I wanted to quit everything and <laughs> throw it all in the garbage. So, um, I think one thing that unlocked watercolor for me and got me moving was I was so frustrated because I had bought this really nice paper. I actually, I had bought and watched in graphic design school. We would make stuff like making books. And so I did know how to I know in theory how to stitch books, but there are some things I'm like, well, is this worth the time or could I just pay Will Bailey <laughs> 40 or whatever, or whatever it is. And then not have to think about this thing for an afternoon. I can do think about something else, but uh, I do find if you have bought a, anything like that and you are looking at it for a moment and not willing to just throw a paintbrush at it, I think for me, I did that for months and months. I wasted nearly a year just not using my materials because I was like, well, I what's the first sketch to be? Or like, okay, now I've done two I'm okay with. And then what if I don't want to ruin the rest of the sketchbook or I don't want to have to cut it out or could I, you know. I went to, again, that craft store and they had, um, what we had was a different, anyways, it was a little craft store here that's since closed down, but they had a bin of newspaper, newsprint sketchbooks and they were all on clearance for 50 cents. And I took 10 of them and, um, they were thick, like inch and a half dirt, dirt, literally, I mean, they're 50 cents each. And, um, they were so bad. They were the worst. They were the absolute, it was like newsprint. (laughs) toilet paper thin like it was like it was like so thin and flimsy and if it was moist in the room it would crinkle and shrivel up it was so bad it was that was why they were 50 cents but i filled every page of those books with watercolor sketches they're so bad and they didn't hold and it crumpled and fell apart but i was doing at the time i was doing 20 to as an as a as a wake up i was doing 20 to 40 figures a day so there were like websites that generate random figures so i'd do these figures and then i would follow tons and tons of fashion blog even though i don't care anything about it but it was just drapery on humans right. so i would just do i would just do tons and tons and tons of just watercolor sketches of people and th- th- none of them turned out good and you couldn't do it on both sides because half the time as i was pulling the brush it would just the paper would just tear with it because it was so flimsy but it got me moving and it got me i got the hours in i was able to start moving uh, the the brush around and then it did make me appreciate good paper (laughs) because i was able to uh go oh wow it's you know this is not terrible you know so i think if you have newspaper or you know, bags from the grocery store, paper bags from the grocery store. If you'll work on that, find something that you'll work on, like move forward a little bit. And if you find something is blocking you in any way, just turn, you got to pivot and keep moving. To me, it's all about, again, this is, I can only say how I got where I am, 
Mm-hmm. It's all about just moving forward. Just keep, keep stepping one foot in front of the other in a direction. And sometimes it's not the direction you think it's going to be, but just keep going forward. And if something encumbers you in any way, you just, you got to pivot a little bit. If you're trying a paint and it's not working for you, it's okay. It's not the end of the world. Right. Try a different surface, try a different palette, try a different thing. If that doesn't work, get some crummy uh, paper and try it on that. Just push it around. Just experiment. A lot of it is just being willing to do that. You know, plain air painting even is a lot of it is just, you know, because it relies so heavily on time on doing, on moving quickly and working quickly. If you, if you are apprehensive at all, it's very difficult to generate the level of spontaneity it takes with watercolor, at least Mm -hmm. to make a vibrant sketch that's full of life. You've got to get rid of those things that are holding you back and be willing to literally throw the brush at or whatever, you know, whack it with a brush, make weird textures, pick up a stick off the ground and scrape back into it. You know, whatever you need to make interesting things, you've got to be able to freely move forward and do it. And it's just, it's those steps one right after the other moving in a direction and, um, pivoting if you feel encumbered by something. I I agree. And, you know, tying that with process and ensuring that you're following in the process and, you know, don't stop halfway through knowing that there's, I always talk about the ugly face. I joke about it now, but sure. um, You know, getting past that. And I would agree, like, you know, I talked about the Will Bailey book. There's a, um, there's an artist near me, uh, Sheila Kane sample. I'll link to her as well. And she makes uh, sketchbooks as well beautifully bound, open binds on them. I'm not sure if that's the right term for them, but there's no binding on the outside of the beautiful books. And, you know, I I would say that if you hear this and think that Will Bailey book, like it sounds like it's going to solve my art problems. Right. um, You know, to your point, we thrive through contrast. So if you, if what you're using isn't working for you, maybe the solution isn't always buying the more expensive item. Maybe it's buying the junkier item because we, we experience yeah. that contrast and we realize, wait a second, it's not as bad as I thought because right. <laughs> this newsprint I'm using or this book that I bought for 50 cents isn't great. And so don't always think that you need to invest more when maybe you need to experience more. And yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I've, I've, it took me, and I've said this before on the podcast, it's t- it took me five or six starts before I finally was comfortable with watercolor because I was expecting it to go where I wanted it to go. And sure. I didn't even know that you had to protect your whites when I first when I did my first piece because there was white in the palette. And it was right. like, why yeah. isn't the white working right? <laughs> like right. I'm expecting to add the highlights back in. Um, so I, I think that it's with any medium, it just takes time. And it's mm-hmm. experience and it's, it, it, you need to be able to look back, as you say, and, and look at those footprints in the snow and know that you're, that you're, they're yours and that you put them there and then you learn something from them. And also that when you're working on pieces, it may not be the final piece that you're the happiest with. It may be the shadow or the light or the value or the detail in one specific area of that painting yeah. that maybe only you will ever see. And right. I, I find that so funny when you post something to Instagram and somebody's like, I really love how you rendered that. And it's like, but I'm most proud of that other little thing that you didn't notice. Sure. Um, it's usually the thing that's gone wrong. I find that a lot <laughs> of plain air painting where I'll be doing the sky and I'll get a, a couple blooms or something and I'll start falling apart and I'll just go, well, I guess I, I keep moving forward, whatever. I guess I'll just try to keep, you know, just ignore it, move on. And then people will go, oh, I like how you 
did this weird texture here. It's like, you know, I'm like, that's the thing I was embarrassed about, you know, and I find that a lot with planar classes and teaching people is people will get so upset if it's uneven, the gradient's not even, or they didn't nail this thing and it made some weird mark, or you put two colors too close to each other too quick and it starts melting into each other. A lot of times that weird soft edge is like what makes the painting look so interesting and people respond to when you might think like, I've, I've ruined the stop sign, but you haven't, it's fine. It just, it's, uh, you know, you've got to embrace that spontaneity. I think it's like plein air painting or water. Well, I guess, you know, most painting, uh, particularly watercolor though, I find I always liken it to, it's like taking an airplane up in the air. It's like the drawing phase and getting yourself set up is like getting into the air. And then the actual painting phase is the ability to tip the nose and just let it go and do what it's going to do. And then the skill is being able to pull the nose up. And a lot of times it doesn't happen. You just crash and you turn the page and there's nothing wrong with it. You've got to pick your wins and, and take that home. But a lot of times it has more to do with the correcting where you want it to go. I don't want to call it mistakes because I feel like that as describing some kind of uh, moral, you know, like good, bad or m making mistakes. I think being able to get to a place where you're seeing it more as something to integrate and not as a misstep or some kind of something you've done wrong, you know, to the right. sketch. It's, it's just, it's, it's part of it now. So integrate it. This is something that has happened and it's part of what makes the sketch, what the sketch is just like our, mishaps or missteps in life or what make us who we are, you know. Back to, you know, people seeing the error and, and, and saying how wonderful it is. I think that's part of what's important about sharing. I mean, there's this conversation about should you be sharing your stuff on Instagram or Twitter or Mastodon or wherever you decide to do it at this point. But I, I think part of that is is understanding that people see your work differently than you. And that the story, back to the point of story, the story that you're trying to tell may not be the story that they're wanting to hear. And so they may be weaving what you've done into a new narrative that you weren't aware of. Mm -hmm. And I think that opportunity, the more you hear it, the more you realize, you know what, I'm going to do this the best I can. I'm going to let it just, you know, I, I went in with a presumption of a story, uh, a thought of, of, of value and light and shadow. And I got to where I needed to go, but I'm going to hand this off to others and, and see where they're going to take it. And I think just being open to that is, is, is important as well. Yeah. That's hard. That's hard to advise on. Cause I think you kind of have to figure out your own, again, I can only say like what makes, what has made me who I am. So it's not like mm -hmm. I'm saying this is what to do, but I think you have to figure out a little bit of how your wiring is in a sense that I think maybe there is, I think you have to, it's kind of like I was saying, it's like, you need to be making these steps forward, moving forward. So maybe if you are the type of person I'm assuming exists that is moving forward and that putting something online or feeling like that part of it is going to be encumber you in some way or slow you down in some way, then I almost think maybe consider cutting it out or figuring out a different, a different avenue for that, at least for a while to keep producing work. Mm. I think for me, you know, I don't know if it's, uh, something wrong with me or like a desperation or something. I, it has just been part of my wiring where it was something to post and then have feedback. And I've never been like popular online, but being, I think there was something to the deadline, I guess it would be, maybe it's a little desperation <laughs> for attention. <laughs> 
maybe it is also, I think something I respond to is the, dead, the deadline of like, well, I have to do something because I've got to post something. And that for me makes me do something, but for others, they might freeze up. So I am hesitant to say, yes, you should integrate into your process or yes, you should integrate public criticism because I've had a lot of terribly mean things said about me in public criticism for both my books and my YouTube channel and every aspect that I put right. work on. I've had people tell me I'm terrible and, uh, or boring or, uh, you know, half your poor listeners are probably, you know, <laughs> uh, already, you know, lost anyways, but they, uh, I feel like, uh, that there is that element to it. That's almost the venom there, but there is a lot. It has helped a lot for me. I think is it has helped a lot with connecting with other artists and people who are developing that circle of trust because I have made really good friends over posting art online and then meeting other people who I really like posting art online and, and, and develops friendships with, with other artists who I, I both look up to and respect their criticism and I can send them stuff and get feedback on Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, being able to parse that out between the occasional person who says this sucks, right? Not to use that word, but, you know, right. <laughs> this is, you know, <laughs> it's awful. Being, and I provide no other criticism. <laughs> right. That's what I mean. It's like being yeah. able to if you can weather that storm and move on, that some people are just going to say that kind of thing occasionally, you know, then I think. But if that encumbers you in any way, it does me. If we're being honest, I think that may be part of my own maybe desperation or something I need to uh spend some time meditating on or thinking about, I don't know, but I do myself get hung up on, on uh, negative things. You know, like if I, if I, I could read a thousand reviews and if one of them was a bad review of my book that I will fixate on that for months, <laughs> much to my wife's chagrin, she gets tired of it. Cause I'll just sort of be moping around like Charlie Brown and the Christmas movie or whatever. And, and uh, it's cause someone said I can't draw people or something or <laughs> my, my backgrounds look stupid or something, you know? I suffer from the same thing. Like I, it's a love hate relationship I have with social media, and yeah, right. I, I just want to go back and say that I'm not proposing that posting to, to social media is an important important part of any creative process. Um, sure, sure. I think that uh, I have many artists that will message me their works. They will email me their work uh, because yeah. they want kind of a protected place to say this is the kind of stuff I'm doing. You know, I thought you may want to see what I'm doing. And I love getting those. And oh, I sure. don't yeah. think you need to post it. I think you need to share it. Yeah. I, I think there is value in that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I didn't mean to imply that's that like Instagram is the best place to do it. Sure, I, sure. I, oh, I, no, I mean, I, I didn't take that. I didn't take that from you. I think I'm responding more to the general conversation I've heard around it, which to me, which for what I've heard has just been that like, is a, a, an exhaustion from people yep. who I understand who are like, oh, now I have to TikTok and now I have to YouTube <laughs> and now I have to like manage another thing and now there's Mastodon. And I think that's what I'm responding to is not not taking that as the advice you were giving, but just from the conversation I have seen of people who are just like, I'm and I own in my own mind I'm like I can't do another one. I can't TikTok. I can't I can't do another one. I've I've got enough i'm <laughs> i can't do this anymore with a, a not, you know yet another thing so i think um that's more of what i was responding to was the general um understood b- the give people being not wanting to uh feel like they have to have a youtube in order to have any kind of success or feeling like they do have to and and going well now what do i do if i 
I have spent all this time developing this skill and now I have to have a YouTube channel or whatever. Right. It's like, you know, I've, I've, that's what I'm responding to. <laughs> I mean, we have a story, but sometimes it, you can't get into every theater and sometimes mm-hmm. you just have to lock into one or two. Uh, yeah. It's, it is challenging these days. I want to go back to the plein air and just ask you about the paint because you are, you're heavy into gouache and mm-hmm. um, transparent watercolor. Are, are you, when you go out and do your plein air work, are you thinking this is a gouache day? Do you do a hundred percent gouache when you come at it or are you mixing them? Like how, what's your approach to kind of the paints that you're using? I tend to lean more on watercolor just because that's sort of my wheelhouse and more of what I do. Uh, I think probably 90% maybe or so of what I do is watercolor. If you include just the working on books and uh, the cartoon work, um, most of what I do is watercolor and then okay. some degree of mixing between watercolor and, and white as a opaque approach. Um, I, I do do a lot of gouache though as well, M- more as a kind of exploratory thing it's like a a part of the process of just um thinking of things in a different way thinking of things more sculpturally um in terms of planes and forms and moving around in an opaque way and something that translates to i don't really see the two as similar to be honest i sort of i group gouache more with like oil paint and that i treat it more like oil paint and that i don't use uh like I don't use a lot of water in it. I use it very thickly and very directly in a kind of what I've essentially stolen from oil painting, all prima method to say all at once. And I don't necessarily build it up through drawing and whatever else. It's more um, kind of just a different way of thinking. And sometimes I will do a lot of gouache in a row and, or if it's for a goal or a class or something where I'm teaching, then I will do a lot of gouache like in a row or like a series on YouTube. I get more questions on YouTube. I find about gouache than I do watercolor. It kind of comes and goes. I think it's like gouache, you know, it was when I was getting into it, no one knew what it was or cared about it. And, and then I think, you know, James Gurney, I think maybe was the one that like really sort of started bringing it to popularity. And it had, has become very popular um, in terms of what, from what I can tell it's, but it's, I think of it more like applying oil paint than I do watercolor and watercolor is its own different kind of thing. James Gurney has, you know, brought a lot of attention to, you know, with his, uh, Gurney easel. <laughs> so being oh, yeah, in the field, yeah. but also, um, yeah, with gouache and, uh, I, I would agree. I, I think it's more fun playing with the transparent watercolors and just having that white gouache available to you to bring the highlights in or to provide a base for mm-hmm. a, a color that you missed or that you figure that you need to bring in. I don't think I've done a piece with 100% gouache. The only reason I had mentioned gouache is I see that one of the courses that you're doing is is a focus on gouache. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was happy to see that because I think gouache is very closely related to watercolor in the sense that it's water-based. You can bring it out in the field. You, you could do it plein air. You could do it in your studio as well. And once again, you don't have to buy a whole set of Holbein or whatever you want. You can just buy a tube of white and start mm-hmm. there. Yeah. Uh, so when it comes to materials, it's real easy. Or even just a couple, yeah. Yeah, like, you know, you could do that in a light ochre or, or you know, you could just mm-hmm. start in with some of the light colors. I don't think you have to worry about, you know, a Payne's gray or an ultramarine blue um, because... Yeah, sure, you know, just getting into it, yeah. Yeah. If you want to get into... I mean, but even then, if you want to get into treating it opaquely, it is, it, you know, you can get a pretty simple set for... Gouache is not terribly expensive. That's sort of the per, the point of it, essentially, which is kind of what you have to get used to when you're using it because it's extremely finicky. 
um, in a way that like oil paint is not. So gouache, it, that's the pro and the con of it is it's very, it falls apart very easily. It, it crumbles easily. It doesn't sit in the palette very well. It, um, you, but at the same time you can erase, you know, if you're not happy with part of the painting, you can use a wet rag and take it all the way off back to the, almost to the paper. It's, it's, um, very thinly held together. So that is both the pro and the con of gouache. It's, it can be frustrating if you're trying to layer cause you pick up lower layers, but also, you know, once you get used to the, it's like you kind of, it has more to do with the consistency, finding the right consistency with it, which is similar to oil paint. And that if you use too much mineral spirits or whatever, then the oil paint will, will just pick up other oil paint and become a big sloppy mess. You have to right. get used to not using a lot of medium and go and being pretty direct when it comes to the paint and gouache is similar with the water. Any amount of water in it is going to reduce the, um, strength and opacity of it. Yeah, and I would I would agree that they don't sit in the palette well, and some colors are really bad. Yeah. Like a like a <laughs> violet, I think tends to be real problematic. You open up your palette, and you've got these chiclets of paint sure, all yeah. over the place. Yeah, I think gouache. Uh, uh, my opinion for people who are not going to do a ton of it, and by I mean a, a lot of it. If you're going to do a lot of it, then a palette would be a, a good move. I actually don't suggest people buy a palette. I usually tell people the best you can do. I think is to use just a wet paper towel, like roll it into a tube and dip it in water and pour the paint on that just a little bit at a time is the most practical way to use it. Cause if you try putting it in a palette, it just fall, it, it crumbles and falls apart. Um, I, I use a palette for mine cause I do a lot of it. And so, but you can't tip the palette, you know, it'll pour out or it gets chalky and crumbles out and becomes a big mess. So you have to get, have to keep it upright all the time. And I've, I find that useful in a sense, but that's only because I do a lot of it. So usually when people ask me like, what palette should I buy? What box should I buy? I usually tell them don't just get a um, butcher's tray or a, uh, even just a plate, a cheap plate or whatever from the store, a ceramic plate and a wet paper towel is your, your best case scenario for gouache. Well, I saw that you, um, you were in the art toolkit uh, newsletter recently. Oh yeah. Well. Oh, okay. Nice. <laughs> so that's uh, that's always nice to. Um, I, I really love using those palettes. You know, I've used. I love those tip- people. Yeah, they're nice. They're so yeah, nice. She, yeah, I had Marie on, and she was uh, fantastic. And they're really um, pushing it forward for those who just want to get out and have something small. Yeah, um, I avoided that thing for it was so funny. I avoided it for so long. I did a video on this on my YouTube channel, but I I because I saw it and I was like, okay, it's clever. <laughs> But like, is that practical to have, like, it seemed to me at the time, because they hadn't had the larger one. It was just the little business card size. I was like, I get that that's clever, but like, I think I had also just gotten into this rat race of feeling like I needed to go bigger and bigger and bigger with plein air painting. And so I was carrying a pretty big box because I was trying, everything I did was at least 14 by 20 or bigger for plein air painting. And so I was just, at the time I was like, I, you know, this is like back in July, I was like, okay, I, I, I would see the people do reviews or see them pop up. And I was like, I get that it's clever, but I don't, I don't think that that would actually be practical. And then they released that little slightly larger one. And I was like, okay, well, I'll try that. And I tried it and I was like, this is the greatest thing I've ever used. <laughs> Tiny pallets, you know, I was like, I love this. And it goes in your pocket. I bought the other one. I bought all of it. I was like, I'm buying all this stuff. I got the the bag and everything, of, you know, the kit or whatever. And, um, and I literally, I don't have it next to me. I usually have my bag, but I usually, I carry the thing everywhere um, now. So it's so funny. 
I'm trying to do more small sketches too for fun, just like little watercolor yeah. sketches too, just in a sketchbook because I, I think I had was getting in a. I talked to Art Toolkit about this. I was getting in a kind of rat race of, uh, maybe and part of it might be that, like I said, desperation for being liked or or seen as having some sort of value in life or in in art or whatever. I've always kind of felt like I don't. I've always felt that sort of desperation and, and neediness, I guess that could just be part of my personality, I suppose. But I think, um, I was getting in this rat race of trying to go bigger and bigger because I've never really felt like an artist with a capital A. I've always felt like I'm just sort of some guy <laughs> who's done this thing a whole lot and that I don't, like I said, I, I've never felt like I have a specific talent for it. So I've felt like I have sort of tried to overcompensate for that. I was talking to James Gurney about that because we do this planar thing and I feel like I am always out with an 18 by 24 and I'm trying to do, I, I just want someone to think that I am able to do this. And I always feel like they're going to think he's just this, he draws cartoons. He's not a real artist or whatever. Like he's not really, you know, whatever. I always feel that way. I feel that way about myself. And so I think I, I had gotten into this rat race of like, it's got to be bigger. It's got to be better. It has to be, you know, or whatever, or people aren't going to like it. And I feel like I was getting away from just when I started getting into watercolor, it was just doing like little five by eight sketchbooks and just like in, uh, enjoying myself, <laughs> having some joy, you know, I was doing the, uh, like the last time I did the thing in New York, I was with my wife and, uh, it was like the night before the event and we were going, you know, just a date night and doing Broadway and some other stuff and, and, uh, Midtown. And I was, uh, but I was paced. I was like viscerally like sweating and pacing around. And I was like, it's, I ha it has to be bad. I was doing a bunch of sketches in a sketchbook and I was like, it has to be the best. It has to be the best in this thing or, or this is like worthless and I'm worthless and all of this is worthless <laughs> and I should just quit and all this stuff. And, and, and she was like, you know, you, you used to like, you used to be happy doing this. Like, what are you, you know, what are you doing? And I was like, well, yeah, I don't, I just, I, I just want, you know, so since then I've been trying to like get back more into just enjoying sketching, just like doing a small sketch in a sketchbook or just, uh, you know, enjoying the process a little bit more and not making something that has to be a certain level or, or better than the last and, and then getting self-deprecating and self-aggravated because it's not, you know, better or whatever, or seen as the best in, in the show, or otherwise I go home just, to, you know, utterly depressed for months and months. Right. I, I think people, some people put down sketchbooks a little bit much like, you know, that's nice, but where's your real work, right? And Sure, yeah. I think when I decided I was going to try acrylic, I started this two foot by three foot piece beside me because a friend That's of mine lovely, said, by the way. thank you. I know your <laughs> listeners can't see it. <laughs> it's over my it, shoulder. It's very nice. <laughs> It'll get there. I'm, I'm hoping I'll have it done in the next, uh, in the next week. But um, an, an artist friend of mine said, you got to go big, just go big. You'll, you'll make big mistakes. You'll make small mistakes, but just go big. And it freaked me out. I'm glad I did. But you know what? When I need a break from that, I open up my A6 etcher sketchbook and mm -hmm. I draw something small in there. Yeah. Um, even with my the book I talked about from Will Bailey, that I'm probably going to put two or three pieces on each page. Like it, it's like, I think nine by 12 or something. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not going to be... That's a good size. Yeah, it's it's a nice size. I'll show you it when we're when we're done. But it's got a nice black cover on it. It's it's a wonderful book. But you know, I do look at your work, 
and the plein air work you're doing. And I'm thinking, you know what? I've got some of those Archer's pads. I need to get out there when the snow goes and uh, mm-hmm. do some of that. I'm also going to do some in my truck because it's winter here. I'm going to use my sure. journey easel on my steering wheel and, nice. and do some plein air that way. But um, I, I think it's important to change the size of the canvas because it changes your focus. It changes your approach, yeah. your tools. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm wondering what I would, and now you've got me wondering what I would have said. Because I I feel like this is, again, goes back to the snow prints or whatever. Is like, I think I might have been like, you got to go small. <laughs> I, like, I feel like I would have been like, you got to tinker around. You got to just do it on something not appropriate, you know, first. Just move it around first. Don't go big. You're going to, you know, whatever. And I would have totally derailed you. <laughs> so I don't know. It's funny. I was just thinking about that, what I would have well, said. But that looks lovely. I'm glad you did that. Thanks. Go big. <laughs> It's coming along. I need to fix that front foot. It annoys me, so I'm going to redo the whole foot. Sure. You you learn something no matter what, whether it's two foot by yeah, three foot true. or it's, you know, I, I did little tiny, I'll show you this here. This is a little tiny piece in graphite here. I mean, this is what? Um, nice. I two, two inches square. I learned sure. something doing that, right? So yeah. I think, who cares how big it is? If you've right. got an A6 sketchbook, if you've got a little tiny uh, post-it note, if you've got a canvas that's four foot by eight foot, um, you're going to learn something through the process. Yeah. And uh, it doesn't mean that that needs to be the only thing you work on either. So you got to take the steps forward. You know, I think that's, it goes back to, I think the taking the steps forward and not getting um, encumbered because you, you learn something through each of those things. I think you, you've got to find, what is your clean fuel in the engine? Like what keeps you moving forward? So like maybe it's, you know, studying art history or studying a particular artist or working small or changing up the size or whatever that just gets you moving forward and has clean fuel, you know, so that you're not, you don't get encumbered by things that may be fuel to move forward, but can also be sort of, um, uh, like the snake eating its tail, like, uh, jealousy you know or stuff like that that's like well it might fuel you to produce i know that that's something i've leaned on sometimes where i go man like i'll think about someone who's better than me and i'll go gosh i'll bet he's he's up drawing right now (laughs) and i'm (laughs) sleeping what am i doing with my life and uh you know i and and but i think jealousy and the desire the the that desperation that i was talking about can also be um detrimental you know i think i i just a quick story, which I'm sorry, I'm not very good at that, obviously. But the guy who mentored me was uh, an illustrator and the best I've, uh, one of the best draftsmen I've ever seen in my life. And he, I told, I came to him, I was, uh, uh, I was doing stuff in like the theater department at school. And I, when I decided I wanted to start trying to draw, he is, uh, was an extremely skilled draftsman. And he was so passionate and all he did was draw. And I, I would, every time I would see him, we got to know each other outside of art. And, but every time I would see him standing, sitting, anything he was drawing, he always had a sketchbook and he would draw in ink and he was constantly drawing and, uh, he would talk and just talk over drawing. Like he didn't stop. I never saw him stop. And I was like, I want to draw like you. Like, so what do I do? Like, how do I get there? And he was like, here's these steps do these steps and meet with me next week. And I did that. And he's like, okay, do this for a month and meet with me next month. And I did that. And I showed him what I was doing. And then he gave me these exercises to do. And we were meeting monthly and we'd get together and draw together. And then I guess maybe it was like a year into it. I, I sat down, I went to meet him and he was sitting at the coffee shop and no sketchbook. 
And I was like, Hey, I was like, what are you, what are we, did you already, are you done? And he was like, here's the thing. I don't want to ever draw again. I don't want to think about drawing. He said, I've already got sick twice today thinking about drawing. I hate it so much. I hate drawing. <laughs> I hate art so much. I never want to do it again. I don't want to talk about it, you know, or whatever. And, uh, so we didn't, and we just sort of moved on and he just moved on and he doesn't really do it anymore. And, so, and I, I think it was just getting to know him. It was like, it was the deadlines and the, the need to keep trying to hustle for work and turn it into money, like the exchange, the process of exchange and the constant. And I get that sometimes it's the, the constant trying to exchange money for it that just sort of ate it from the inside out. And eventually it became a thing that he was like, I can't even think about this anymore. I just, you know, and, uh, it was like a lesson for me. I was like, man, I, you know, I think about it sometimes I go, man, I don't want to get, if I get too caught up or too stressed out or too self-deprecating, which is a constant for me or whatever, I go, well, I, I don't want this. I don't want this to become cancerous to my process where it chews it from the inside out. So I think, I think I'm aware of that sometimes if I feel myself getting more and more jealous of someone or, uh, you know, or something I can, uh, try to have the self-awareness to go, okay, well don't let this, you know, eat it from the inside out. Yeah. That's, uh, that's tough. I think that's why it, a lot of people maybe get held back in monetizing their art as well is, is, you know, what if you end up hating it at some point? Yeah. Right. If you fail at it, it's art is so kind of intrinsic to who we are, but if you try to make money at art and you don't end up selling your artwork at a level that you expect, it it becomes a deeply personal challenge. Yeah, and it can eat you up a little bit. And yeah, that's, sure, that's hard to get through. I would suggest talking to other creatives. Um, I've been through that. I'm going through that in some degree right now. <laughs> yeah, so. Yeah. It's, no, uh, it's important mean. to talk about it if, if you're going through it because uh, many people are going through it or have gone through it or will go through it. And Yeah, um, sure. It's finding the people that are one step ahead of you and one step behind you. Those are the people you need to talk to. It does become complicated, the relationship to it, once you start doing something where you're exchanging money for it. I think I've taught people before. I taught one lady in a planner class and she was telling me how she had wished that her son had pursued art more because now he just lives in Brooklyn and he's just slicing ham all day because he became a butcher and she was sad that he didn't just pursue art as his career because he had went to school for it. And I told her, I was like, listen, it may seem kind of lofty and enjoyable, but I'm slicing ham all day too. A lot of days. Like I'm not, it's not like I wake up and I just sort of like, you know, dance through the tulips. I'm, I, it's when you are doing something and exchanging money for it, it kind of changes the relationship to it. And so it can become work. It still becomes work. It's, it's stuff that has to get done. Mm. A lot of stuff that has to get done, especially with like books, you know, it's just a lot of work and essentially it is work, you know, even if you enjoy doing it. So I think of that sometimes too, that this is, um, a lot of days I'm still just slicing ham, but I, I do it. I have to do it, you know? Yeah. I think it's, it's, and you may have things that are, like even with yourself, because I want to uh, jump into the books now, and then we'll talk about YouTube. They are separate jobs in many ways. Even with me, with the podcast versus the art I do, I can treat sure. them as separate jobs. And I think when you have that isolation, it helps to kind of frame it a bit differently to understand that it's not just one busy job. You've got multiple jobs that you're doing when you're an artist. 
and um, it can be challenging. So when you're creating on YouTube, you're a YouTube creator. That's you're mm-hmm. an artist who happens to do YouTube, but mm-hmm. uh, that's that's your role at that point. I want to dive into the books because uh, I think that's an interesting, you know, maybe example of of perseverance and and getting your voice out and telling your story. With uh, you've got three books now. Um. Cody, Cody 2, Wonder City. I don't have Cody 2 out yet. I'm working on Cody 2 right now. So I have two full graphic novels out, and then I have uh, some other books I've done that are not full graphic novels. So, And that's like licensed character stuff, so like Fraggle Rock and whatever else. Okay. Uh, But yeah, I have two two books out, and I'm working on Cody 2 right now, and my agent is currently pitching a book, so I um, might be working on that too, which I might... (laughs) kind of disappear if that other one gets picked up too if i'm doing two books at once i probably will have to um i'm not going to quit youtube and stuff but i probably will have to definitely decrease the amount of time i'm spending teaching and doing that kind of thing right to focus how has that process been in creating a book uh you know i'm coming i'm asking this as somebody who's interested in creating a book and i'm wondering you, you talked earlier about that whole idea that you we're trying to sell this book and it, you know, there was a lot of rejections in and around that sure. and it ended up generating some interesting opportunities anyways. But, yeah. um, you, you went the typical publisher route, not self-publish, right? With, right. With both books. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I guess I technically have another, I did self-publish a book at one point. Okay. Uh, before Cody got picked up. So maybe you can talk about the process in kind of creating a book and maybe speaking towards those people who may have this inkling of an idea that they want to take what they're creating visually and turn that into some kind of narrative that is bound and sure. sellable. Sure, sure. Well, you know, uh, it has felt like it feels like a, a hiking a mountain, you know, when it comes to the book, it feels like you're trying to get to the peak and over it and you're at a base camp and there's a lot of work to be done at every step to get up it. And you need to make sure that you have a lot of, like we talked about clean fuel in the process. That's part of why I do the other things I do and kind of to touch on what you mentioned with doing the YouTube and the teaching. And then the books is I, most of the people I know who live off their art are constantly spinning plates. So making a living has essentially been just like spinning five different plates. (laughs) It's like I have the teaching and then the books and the YouTube and selling the planar paintings and doing the planar paintings and that kind of thing. Um, it's like spinning these different plates I have, and I kind of have to constantly keep going back and spinning them, which can be exhausting and its own thing. That's, that is difficult, but doing the books, it's just something that I had always wanted to do. And that was the the goal and where I wanted to go. And I think once you have the idea, the important parts are figuring out those steps and that it isn't like you don't just have the idea and then the book and then the European tour and the, whatever, you know what I mean? There's a lot of, (laughs) very difficult steps to get to having a book done, whether you self-publish it or go through a publisher. I self-published a book because I felt like I needed the platform because I just didn't have anything and I didn't have any way to prove that I could do this thing to a publisher. And so I had self-published a book just to have something out there and, and to create something. And I think that that has its own pros and cons in the same way being published has its own pros and cons. I think the thing that I like and will probably always love about publishing is that I, I just don't like not art stuff. I'm not good at math. I'm not good at, 
organization in particular. I don't, like I said, I don't really have any skills <laughs> other than just drawing, which is, you know, tenuous at best. But I, I think um, w- w- when it comes to doing a book, if you're going to self-publish it, you have to just factor in the fact that you need to put it somewhere, these thousands of copies, and then you need to get it out somehow. So you have the internet, but also conventions and traveling with it, where if you go the traditional route of getting published, then they handle a lot of that stuff, warehousing and shipping the books and trying to sell the books to libraries and schools or whatever. And that part I like, cause I don't like that part. I don't know how to do that part. <laughs> I, I, um, I just want to draw pictures all day. <laughs> that's, all, <laughs> that's all I've ever wanted. And so, um, I think you, you, it may end up with, uh, a different structure in terms of finances with having it published. Uh, it just depends on your, your setup, but there's a lot, there's a lot you have to understand business wise, how to do if you're going to self publish in terms of, you know, storage or paying someone else to store it for you or paying some there, you know, there are companies now, of course, that are like built around this shipping and doing all that stuff, but just the groundwork of trying to sell the thing becomes its own skill. And it's a skill that I don't, care to pursue <laughs> so i just want to draw the pictures and then go draw more pictures so i like having a publisher because i i am able to send them the story and then you know work with the editors and move towards doing the book i think uh, in general working on a book it, it is like sort of climbing a mountain and so you have to be willing to think of it that way and think of it as not uh, you're not going to have a book by the end of the week, like you need to be able to accept the fact that there's a lot of planning involved and there's a lot of steps. Now I'm comfortable in the process that it is part of my general machine that I know my steps I took. I know what I need to do and I know how to get there. And so I can sort of lock into this road trip a little better, uh, and just take it one gas station, one town at a time. And that's comfortable for me doing Cody was a bit, was the learning curve for me, um, of just figuring out the process of creating the story, just creating the story and having the story was like, well, now we've got a tidy base camp, but I haven't even started climbing yet. So the actual climbing is not just, it it goes back to that thing about talent and the capacity. It has to do a lot with the capacity of the workload of being able to not quit. A lot of people I know have an idea and will come to either have an outline or a, you know, a written version of it or some step along the way and then feel like they've, it's not working or that it's run its course. That's, you've got to be able to keep going. It's like I said about all of art, I guess it's sort of that being able to put one foot in front of the other and get to the thing that's right in front of you. And I think to me, both art and doing books, kind of going back to the gardening thing, there's like this, not, again, not to be too woo, I don't want your uh, listeners to roll their eyes, but there's like this old saying I've heard or whatever, that's like, you tend to the garden, part of the garden you can reach. And I think of art and I think of doing books the same way. Like, don't, try not to think, except for outlining, of course, and organizing. Don't worry about the last page or being done or being finished or whatever what can i do right now do you need to do an outline then do the outline it's not going to be perfect do a draft do a second draft or however many it takes 
do an outline. If you're doing a graphic novel, which is what I do, you got to do story, either storyboards or some kind of visual input. And you also have to figure out your own methods and tools. Like I tend to be very visual and I have a hard time, obviously talking and reading and writing. And so I, I, um, you know, I'm not very good with words and I'm not very good with putting them down either. And so if it comes to like writing a prose novel, I would have a very difficult time because I'm just not very, um, I don't know. I want to say intelligent, but that sounds like I'm being self-critical. <laughs> I'm just not very, I'm very visual. I'll just say that I'm very, like, I think of things visually. I think of things in terms of scenes that I can play in my head. And so for me, the writing process is more of a storyboarding process. I tend to write the books by storyboarding. So I draw just, I draw the pictures that I see in my head. And that tends to be how I write writing or drawing these pictures and then hearing it, so to speak, like the dialogue and then running it in my head. Okay. Well, what if it's a higher angle that might make the viewer feel more, you know, make the character feel more small. Maybe that would communicate something. Okay. Well, maybe it's raining or maybe it's, you know, or whatever, like running these different, maybe there's spotlight from this and that could somehow highlight this mood or this feeling. And like, how can I better, you know, tell this story that way that I think of it more that way than I do writing out a bunch of words, but some people think very clean and clearly in words. And I think you kind of have to figure out your process of just getting the information down, tending to the part that you can reach and just taking those steps forward and moving forward up the hill, which eventually becomes a very steep climb. It's hard and it's hard. You know, once you get in my case, it's drawing the books. So if I'm doing 150 pages, there's a good 70 to 80 page in that I start hitting a wall in the same way, like a marathon runner would where I go, I, I'm, I don't want to draw this character anymore, <laughs> or I don't want to think about this anymore. It's, it can be tiring. It's a long, arduous road, but being able to move past that and uh, pivot around that and just keep stepping one page in front of the other until the thing is done is a skill that's not at least intuitive for me. Maybe it is for other people. It's something that I have to actively work through and fight against. And I think that, I think that would be the case for most people, it, but not thinking of it as like, being done or thinking necessarily of, of pu being published as being the necessarily the end goal. I don't know how to describe that, but I've run into that too, where people say they just want to be published. Or they just want to feel validated in some way by that. And I think that, um, that can also be a bit of a trap. It's not like, uh, necessarily, you know, I think that the goalpost always moves, you know? So you've got to be able to find the joy in the moment and the joy in the individual page or drawing or whatever pro part of the process you're in right. so that you can, uh, you know, live your life, <laughs> I guess. It's like some people believe you're not an artist unless you're in a gallery. So I think it's right. It, it could be along the same lines. And I think I, I love the look of Cody. I think that's, I, I, I'm eyeing that like, that's how I want to do it. So I, I think that it looks brilliant. And I think you, um, you're too critical of yourself and <laughs> oh no <laughs> i don't know yeah i think you're a wonderful artist and i think that the fact that you've pursued this um these two books and and now three and possibly more is exciting i'm wondering like as a visual artist in the graphic novels so understanding there's a large visual element what has it taught you about your art like what it, in in going through that process and climbing those mountains what have you come back to plein air painting and, and working in your sketchbook? What have, what have you taken from that process that you're now using? Well, certainly the abandonment of 
attachment to the individual thing as being the end all. So just seeing it all as part of this process or steps in front of one foot in front of the other moving forward and having their own sort of goals and uh, things and things that I want to do with them. I guess, you know, comfort with the material would be a lot of it. I think I have the things that really mean a lot to me happen to be cartoons that have influenced me and greatly influenced the way I think about cartoons. So, you know, Hal Miyazaki and Sylvain Chaumet, the French cartoonist and director and like his film, The Illusionist, like I've learned so much from his work and the way he draws people that has greatly changed the way that I, I think about things. But essentially I, like I was saying earlier, not to just repeat myself, I still think of it all as kind of the, the same thing. I don't, I don't personally see that big of a difference between the cartoons and the plein air painting when it comes to just, I have some shapes and and light hitting those shapes and and then you know how is that affected you know i appreciate that and i can see what you're saying i I have trouble kind of i have to think about that some more because i i appreciate that you're able to do that and um i think it's forcing me to look at your art differently when you talk about it that way which is exciting i want to ask you about the youtube component because i think I'm looking at doing more videos. I know a lot of artists are looking at different ven- uh, venues, awesome. theaters. That's exciting. To show their work. <laughs> it is. Uh, I've been working for, I mean, you could say years, but aggressively maybe for six months and trying to set up a scenario where there's a good environment for that, right? Sure. And I'm wondering, are you looking at, do you have a schedule? Do you think I've got to release a video next week, so maybe I should do a plein air piece uh, that has some narration or one that doesn't? Should I focus on a skill? And sure, how? Just talk through that kind of production process for yeah. for the artist who's thinking about putting out a bit more content on YouTube or just starting out for the first time. I think there. I have a lot of thoughts on this. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> uh, okay. I think. Um, I want to be respectful of your time, though. I don't want to just prattle on. Uh, but the, I think with the YouTube channel, I think it's very beneficial in that I th- uh, in my own process, it has given me an avenue to have a deadline, which again comes up again. It's an important thing to me to have a goal and a deadline and something to chase, um, a carrot on a stick, so to speak. I have the YouTube channel that funnels into the Patreon. The Patreon, I'll do a monthly full demo on, which is I have found very useful. It is, uh, the one thing you have to be aware of when you go into that sort of relationship, I would say, is that you then are beholden to produce the content, you know, in a sense, I have told people, if you pay a dollar a month, you get a full demo. And so some months I'm very busy, but I still have to eke out that demo because I told people I would do it. And I just feel that personal pressure, even though everyone has been nothing but supportive on there. I, I don't have anyone who's ever been negative on there, but I just mean, I feel that personal pressure that I have to, uh, now produce this thing, at least one full demo a month. And then what I usually do is I then take that demo and chop it up or speed it up and put it on YouTube as part of the YouTube channel. And YouTube in general has been, I ended up, it became a kind of extension of my desire to teach and pass this on. I'm so passionate about painting and talking about painting that I, I started out trying to teach at a local art school a long time ago. And they told me that I, I, that I, at the time I wasn't very skilled yet. And they did like that. I did cartoons. They were like, well, you could teach kids cartoons. <laughs> so I did that. 
it was fine and I enjoyed it. But um, I got I was very involved, heavily involved at the figure drawing weekly and eventually hosted it some and got involved with that. And then I started teaching the figure drawing and I started teaching. My wife was in nursing school at the time. And so both of us were obsessed with anatomy. It became like our dinner conversation was just describing all the muscles in the arm and memorizing them all. And I started teaching anatomy and then I started getting into heavily into planar painting and it became part of what I was teaching incidentally. And all of a sudden it opened everything up for me because I started to have to put that into words. And I, I, if you can find an avenue to do that somehow, like YouTube is great. If you're doing what I do, which is that I go back and do the voiceover over the footage and Mm -hmm. I try to, then it forces me to now go, why did I use ultramarine? What could I have done differently? And okay. I obviously I messed this part up for what I wanted to do, but I was able to incorporate it and I would have done it differently you know, I can, it's like looking over old footage, but also verbalizing. And then in, in future paintings, I can go into it thinking, and now you, you know, teaching live, I can, I can talk live as I do it and say, well, I'm using, you know, ultramarine and burnt sienna for gray. I'm oscillating from warm to cool. I have words, these words I didn't have when I was starting out. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know how to paint or see color. I didn't see anything. I had, I had a friend who was a painter. I asked for advice and I said, he was a painter. And I was like, I think I want to try a painting. And he was like, you know, well, you have to look for this and this and this color and temperature. He was explaining how like there's yellow and purple in the clouds and all this stuff. And I was like, I don't think I see any of that. I don't know what you're talking about. And he was like, <laughs> Oh, I he, he, at the time he was like, I, I just think you may not be a painter. I think you just don't, I don't know what to tell you. If you don't see it, then I don't know what to tell you, but it's like switches in your head you become aware of and you can turn those on. You start to study the science of light. I don't think I see color very well. I lean heavily on value and temperature in my own paintings. And then I have tricks to sort of incorporate more saturated colors or brighter colors, but I'm not particularly uh, good at seeing color. The YouTube channel was a great way to then talk through the process and force myself to a continuation of like teaching open that up for me. It was like, Oh wow. I, it really helps to have to explain this. And so YouTube was like a way to start explaining that process. And then I met other people doing it and it sort of became its own community. And so now I just enjoy that kind of general feedback. But the biggest thing I think with the YouTube channel and having one that goes anywhere necessarily, which doesn't really matter essentially is um consistency that's the biggest thing i would tell people when they ask me or they tell me that they're wanting to start a youtube channel they're thinking about starting a youtube channel there are so many i'm sure it's for every aspect of life how to videos or whatever else goes on youtube uh is there are so many people who just start flaming hot and they're like i'm po- they're posting at twice a day and two videos and then a this thing and then their uh product reviews and we're doing product review thursdays and sitting in the studio Sundays and whatever, like they do all these clever things and they're just hammering it every day for like two weeks and then nothing for four years. There's that happens all the time. I think, um, YouTube for whatever way, the machine, whatever the giant machine that it is works, it, it, uh, rewards consistency in a sense that like, if you're, if you do five videos, I think you're better off backlogging some and going one a week or some, or one, just set yourself something that you can do and do that. Don't go into it like, and, and do this thing where you're doing a fully edited and produced video weekly or something like do something consistently because YouTube will 
reward that more and you'll get to know people more. You know, people who comment begin to start commenting regularly. You can kind of develop a relationship over time with it. But um, yeah, I, I see a lot. Most of what I see is people who just come in way too hot and they're excited about it. It's a, it's a lot of work and it's kind of a pain to do, to have to then go back and edit or whatever you do. I mean, I don't know how to use technology for being totally honest. And so I basically just throw it into iMovie and then talk for a while into the machine. I, but that's as far as I know, I don't know how to edit things or make it visually interesting videos. That's why none of my videos are, <laughs> are fun. Like I'm not fun uh, <laughs> as a person. So I think it's like my, my videos are typically just, I, I literally point the camera at the table and just start painting I'm not good at being a YouTube person or whatever. Like you see these people who are like gesturing wildly and they're very excited to be there. And I, I don't know how to be that person. <laughs> this is, this is, you know, and this is about peak me uh, in the video. So <laughs> in terms of excitement, so I usually just point it and draw. So it helps me to have a deadline and a reason to talk about the process, an avenue to talk about the process and a way to connect with people. And it has, you know, in a sense, funneled into like them teaching the Zoom classes now. And it's a way to advertise, you know, it's a, and with consistency, too. It's a way to like I have a little um, advertisement for Cody, like a literally a two second flash up in the beginning. That's just like, here's a book and then you go into the video. But it's just a way to consistently keep putting something out there. I think a lot of social media kind of relies on that, um, unfortunately, being consistent. I like specifically two points and, and that is that it helps to sell yourself as an artist it, it provides the story of you right mm -hmm. um which i think is important we need to be able to tell that because it attaches um it, it attributes i think a bit more value to the work we produce if you have you know if you have one of jared's works in your house you could say oh let me tell you the story of this guy um so i think having sure. that opportunity is great and I do, and I've talked about this in the podcast before, I think being able to tell your, to, to be able to share your creative process provides you more education at times than the people you're speaking to, because it forces you to to cut up that meal, that recipe. Uh, it's like, it, you know, the turkey stuffing that you do every year, whatever the case. And finally, somebody's like, can you just write it down so in case something happens, right. we can replicate it? And it's like, yeah. yeah. But in doing that process, you're going to reveal more about what you're doing and why you're doing it. And I think that's mm -hmm. true for art. So telling people what you're doing and why you're making the decisions, I think makes you a better artist. So doing that through education, whether it's teaching a class or, or YouTube, has, and you're yeah. doing both, I think is great. And I think more people need to do it and and it as you said you don't need you don't need to be highly technical to do this yeah uh, when you're doing your ex, uh, just as a matter of of a technical question because people will ask like if you're doing your plein air work what camera are you using to record yourself just my iphone usually Same, like it's i bought a little uh a little um i have bought cameras now and then i've since tried to invest more in the channel by having a nicer camera which i have which i'll do live stuff with like if i'm doing a live workshop mm -hmm. but the best um easiest I i've had to do is i just have a little tripod and a thing that holds bites the iphone and i just shoot it on the iphone and then put it on the throw it into iMovie and maybe cut out something here or there that's like you know, filling a shape or something that takes too much time or something. Right. Or if I walk away for a second and come back, you know, cut that stuff out pretty easily. And then, uh, and, and yeah, put some music on it and talk. <laughs> 
Well, I think it's great. Like I've watched so many of your videos and you may Thanks. put yourself down as being not great at all this and not having personality for it. But I, I think they're wonderful. And to hear you talk about your work as you're doing it, I've learned so much and I've, I've started to look at my work differently. And so I really appreciate the way that you do things. And I don't think you need to feel that you, you're doing it you're doing it exactly as you should, and I really enjoy you doing that. So please continue doing Thanks. it, and, <laughs> and don't burn yourself out. Because I, I do agree that, like, even when it comes to my newsletter, like I was all like, "I'm doing a newsletter. I'm going to do all these sure. sections," and it's yeah. like you get to a point where you're trying to sell your work, and yeah, so you need the, the time to produce the work. And when you're right. doing all that other stuff, it and so that's why I'm being a, a little bit careful about the YouTube thing. Because uh, I did live drawing every Sunday for a period of time as well. And that was nice time when I couldn't do the production. So it's it's like, if sure. you're going to take it on, be quite open. Like if you're going to, if you think you can do it every two weeks, do it once a month. And then mm-hmm. you can always scale yeah. it up. Yeah. Or do it. If you're, if you're feeling really like excited and you've got five or six, I, I think do it, but just back, but just put it on the file and then you can schedule it. Or just just keep it in the backlog, and that's my my peak time of of uh, productivity is like in the summer if I can film like six or seven demos. Like I went to New York, and I have been milking that poor trip for <laughs> the rest of the year because I've been so busy with other book contract stuff and working on Cody too. Uh, but I filmed. I just, I did six or whatever plane. I don't remember how many I did a, a bunch of plane air paintings and I just shot them on the iPhone real quick and they've just sat in a file, you know, and even though sometimes I'll go, I really want to, I just want to get it out there. It's there. And I just, I'm itching to just, it would maybe get a couple more likes. It would get a couple more like, but I, I've just, I've just kept it in the backlog. I'm doing the one a month and then occasionally another one. If I don't feel like it's like a full demo, like I like it to be, I'll just put it in 20 times speed and just throw it on YouTube or whatever I have. I'll usually throw it up as just a sped up version, just to have something you have to have something kind of consistently throwing coal in that fire or otherwise it will, it will not grow. And I, I think that we've got an advantage being uh, creatives working in visual arts is that a lot of our content ends up being evergreen. So even though mm-hmm. it's winter, you can still put out something that, that was shot in the summer, but the tools you're using, the subject, none of that's, none of that's going right. away anytime soon. It's not like it's sure, tech, yeah. right? Where there's a new iPad or a new iPhone right. and you've got to get it out this week. Uh, you know, There may be opportunities where you get to review things or you may want to do a piece around um, the, the Wednesday show on Netflix or something, right? So maybe it needs to be more timely, but maybe you could throw right. that in between the regular ones. But we do have that opportunity where you we could do works and just bank them. And I agree, like I mm-hmm. do it on Instagram where I put together something and it's like, oh, I just want to send it out now. But yeah, I post it at three o'clock in the morning, it'll get more likes. And yeah, exactly. I, I, feel, I feel dirty thinking about Instagram sometimes, the way it guides your life. Sure, right? yeah, yeah. But, no, um, I know what you mean. <laughs> but it is important to be consistent. And I think YouTube and video specifically it, and we're seeing that is going to be a, a really important way for us to sell our art. Mm-hmm. If we come right down to it. Right. Yeah. And it helps. And it helps to developing your circle, your friends, you know, mm-hmm. your pe- people who I probably wouldn't have run into, except that we both have chased this YouTube thing. Uh, you know, do you have any regrets? Uh, are you still going to be doing it? 
even if you yeah, work oh, on yeah. this other book and another book. Well, possibly. I will always, uh, I plan to, that's like I was saying is like, I feel like you have to have your figure out what your consistent rhythm is and then you can play in between. Like you need a baseline and then you can do a solo in between every once in a while for something like uh, that pops up. But, um, I, I will always try to hit bang the drum of the, and because now I'm beholden to people who are paying me a dollar <laughs> or more to do these once a month full demos, I will be doing that no matter what, which then turns into a short YouTube video at the very least. Um, because that's just, you know, I would have to, I guess I could just, you know, turn off the Patreon and then move on. But I enjoy doing that part. I like doing the voiceover and that. So I will probably always do that as just my consistent, at least once a month, produce something. And then occasionally I have a backlog or I have others that I can throw, just throw into the machine or whatever. But I plan to keep doing it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just nice side plate to spin to, and it sort of funnels into the other aspects of, um, you know, trying to be solvent, (laughs) trying to, uh, you know, keep the plane in the air and and keep fuel, uh, moving forward and the kids fed and, and, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's something to do and to be excited about too. So I will probably always do it. I really like, I've got a Patreon for the podcast as well, and I don't do enough for the Patreon supporters. And so I do feel that uh, your point about doing a full demo for them and then uh, watering it down and distributing something on YouTube is a really good, because, you know, that's the thing when I had Jake Parker on, one of the things I remember really distinctly about what he said is, is, you know, if you produce something, try and find six to 10 uses for it. That's and. genius. I was just about to say the same thing. It's like you, I need the trickle down cause it helps like the overall process. That's genius because like I, I, th- I think of it the same way, which is like I do the, so like I do the gouache or the watercolor landscape class and the hope is, or even if I'm doing a planar class, but the hope is like, I'll do the demo, but I'll also hopefully sell the painting as the, the demo at some point. And I have, like I'm filming my demos now for the class, but I have that footage. So I'm not going to give that away because people are paid for that, but I will chop it up into like a little, like let's talk about color saturation. And here's like, I'll give five minutes of it or a 20 times X speed version of it and say, whatever, to think about color, you know, but like I basically, like I am always thinking of that too, of trying to maximize the output of, of something mm-hmm. um, like a, trickling down the use of, of each individual thing that you may, or the footage or the whatever, uh, you right. know, cause I've got like the full length demo that I can then chop up and then hopefully sell the actual painting too. So hopefully I can get it coming and going. I kind of have to, I don't know. I'm not at a place where I'm like getting book contracts that I can just sort of like, you know, not care. I'm at a place as you know, <laughs> a lot of people are making art where it helps. I don't, you know, like, I don't know how, and people who do di- comics digitally, I have no idea how they, from, from a business side of things, like stay solvent or float. I don't even know if I'm using the right word. I don't know anything about money or business, but I do traditional comics. But then I have a thing I can, I have this thing. I have 150 something pages that I can take to conventions and sell and people collect that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, it's like, uh, hopefully in all the avenues, I can find a couple ways that it trickles down exactly. Like he said, uh, there's like a, a sort of tr- branching out in different ways. You can sort of make it worth it. Cause right. I don't know. I don't know how else to do it <laughs> to be honest. Well, I think you're doing a wonderful job 
of it. And I love, <laughs> uh, like, when you post stuff on Instagram or YouTube, I always tune into that. I, I think it's wonderful to see. And, Thanks. Um, you know, before I get into asking you about homework, I just wanted to ask you, what do you think is the best advice that you've ever received? Because it seems like you've in, you've spoken with so many people. We talked about James Gurney, which uh, I, I he wrote an endorsement for your uh, for Cody, which was yeah, great to see. Nice and um, you've interacted with all these wonderful people over the years. And I'm wondering, what is the best advice you've ever received? And it could be from your wife. Like again, I'm not suggesting it may be from an artist, but yeah, what do sure. you think is the best advice you've ever received? Why? Yikes. I don't even know. I don't know what the best <laughs> advice I've ever received. I think most of it has to do with stuff like the tend to the garden that you can reach, which is stuff that's just general stuff that I have shoehorned into art practice because that's the only thing I do and think about. <laughs> so I think probably, probably that, you know, I mean, um, or that kind of mentality of, uh, uh, being able to keep going, I would think, um, is, uh, just not, just not giving up just finding a, a way to keep producing stuff. So I don't know. I, I don't know the, the best specific advice I've had. I like tending to the garden you can reach. I, I, I tend, I'm self-taught in a sense. I mean, everything is subscription school. So I've technically had instructors per se, but I have not had anybody who was like advising me. I've never had that relationship before, outside, except for people outside of comics who are smarter than me and uh, who could... Uh, tell me, you know, life coaching advice, mentor type advice that then could trickle into art. But I've never had a, a relationship where uh, someone higher than me in art has given me direct advice, Ex you know, except for like personal friends who I have, who are life right. friends who happen to also make art. Like James is also just a good friend. He's not someone I just try to like shake down for a uh, you know, uh, whatever. I actually like enjoy hanging out with him and his wife. And, um, that's been a, a good relationship to develop over time, but it's, it's, um, nice. It's not one where I'm trying to shake him down for advice. <laughs> right. I, or at least I've never thought it that way. I think it's more that wanting to be friends in that desperation I was talking about, or wanting to be seen as, as, uh, not just, a you know, someone who does cartoons. <laughs> so you were talking, you do this annual thing with him. Is this um, an event that people can attend or, or what is it? They do. And uh, in tandem with it, it's at the botanical gardens in uh, New York, okay. in the Bronx or whatever. It's, um, it's a planar invitational and they invite like, uh, I don't know, like 15 people or something like that. But they do also do an urban sketchers meet at the same time. So we're all together. Like just some of us are doing the invitational and other people are doing you know, whatever full painting or sketch or whatever that they're doing. So it's just sort of like a big event, an art day at the uh, botanical gardens. Jeez. Oh, That's not, I may have to consider doing a drive down one year for that. That sounds exciting. Sure. If I'm going, I'll, I'll, I'll let you know and I can uh, catch up with you. Yeah, that would be fun. It's a huge garden. It's huge. <laughs> um, but it is neat. It's a, it's a fun event. Yeah. I'll have um, to check that out. It's uh, I always love going to those kinds. We have a, uh, some smaller ones here. There's a bigger one in Montreal as a matter of botanical gardens, but uh, it's it's a wonderful way to spend the day, right? Yeah, I'd love to do something like that here in Pittsburgh, like an invitation or some kind of planer. I'd like to do more of those in the future. It's hard because time is so stretched so thin. I also have to be like aware of my own mental, you know, health when it comes to that kind of thing because I can be so, like I was talking about with my with my wife talking me off the you know the edge in <laughs> in New York last year because I I. I, when I'm doing a plein air event or whatever, um, I have a tendency to create a self-competition when it's 
we're supposed to just be having fun and I get I can get so upset that it's not probably healthy for me so I have to like I want to do more but at the same time I'm aware of how I get when it comes to that kind of thing and wanting wanting it to be at a certain level and and being so angry at myself if it's not so I I have to juggle the desire to want to do more events but also uh, want to sleep uh, <laughs> at night. Well, I think that's, I mean, there's an opportunity then to collaborate maybe with two or three people that are in that trust group, right? And then, yeah, yeah. And it's true. not all your work. Maybe it gets even to a point where you just show up, <laughs> right? Yeah, right. It'd be fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. So I always get to this point. The listeners been listening to, I mean, it, this has been a, a wonderful conversation. We've, we've wandered so much into these areas that, I feel just need to be talked about. And I think this is, yeah, I love it when I get to the end of a podcast and I just want to go paint. I, I feel like sure. we've done something right. And I feel like that right now. So I feel like sure this will leave people with the impression of I need to go create something. Good. I hope so. I hope I didn't, I, 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 I know I can be self-critical. I hope I don't sound like I'm just fishing uh, or whatever. I, I, I'm just trying to be honest. <laughs> Well, it's, it's great. This kind of stream of consciousness at times and being able to have this discussion with you has just been wonderful. And I'm wondering if, if people wanted to, to take something from you as a matter of homework and, and go away with it and, and try and do something, what would you recommend as a kind of a homework activity? I, I recommend, uh, I would say, one of the things I would recommend doing, apart from, a, I have a, a series of different exercises in terms of developing as an artist, but I think probably the best that I've had the most, if you want to talk about like the most uh, re- return of investment in terms of time is um, literally just the thing that got me started with drawing because I couldn't draw because I was so self, if you can imagine, self-deprecating. And so just angry at myself for even trying, or just embarrassed, I should say, of, of even wanting to draw that uh, I couldn't do it. And so I, um, t- that person who gave me advice was like, you'd get a moleskin sketchbook at you know, at the time they were, I think they've I've since gone cheaper with the paper. I don't know exactly, but the moleskin hat, there's basically start a secret sketchbook. And I'm going to do a YouTube video on this because I get a lot of questions about it. Cause I mentioned it in one of my videos and then people were like, what, what you meant, you know, like, what was that? Like, I, <laughs> I just sort of like said it and then kept talking about something else, but, um, I have it here and, uh, essentially it's, um, get yourself a secret sketchbook. It's like a side sketchbook. You know, most of my sketchbooks are more just sort of work. I write my grocery lists in them. I draw any kind of thing I'm thinking of in them and I don't really care about them. Even if it's a good drawing, I don't care. I just keep churning them out. That's where I do most of my general exercises. This sketchbook is my secret sketchbook, which is a practice I started when I started drawing and at the time was only able to draw stick figures. And there are laws to the secret sketchbook that you have to adhere. It's just just something to do, which it doesn't really matter. But if you want to do it, the laws of the secret sketchbook are it has to be something kind of like a moleskin. So not necessarily like that newsprint 50 cent sketchbook, because there are a series of skills that you're developing. And one of those skills is being able to ruin this thing is the point is you are not trying to make a beautiful sketchbook. You are just trying to fill a book period. That's the, that's the goal. So don't worry about anything and don't, the part of the lesson is learning that mistakes are not mistakes. It is just something to integrate just like a mishap in life. It's just part of what makes the drawing, the drawing. So the key to the secret sketchbook is 
one law, one. No one is to look at it. So you aren't beholden to showing this to anybody. You're not going to put this in a gallery. This isn't going to be in a museum. Don't show it to your spouse if you don't want to. Don't show it to strangers who want to look and say, oh, can I flip through and go, ah, this one's kind of, this is just sort of my own thing. Um, so no, it doesn't matter what you produce in it. Law two is draw only an in ink, preferably fountain pen. Or I use, uh, a lot of times I'll use not fountain pens, but the similar to fountain pens, the uh, rollerball pen, sorry. Uh, because the the point is if you stop moving, it will bleed out and fall apart a little bit. So you have to keep moving. That's the other lesson that the secret sketchbook is to teach you nice. is to just keep moving. Don't stop. Don't hesitate. Only draw and only draw in ink that you cannot erase and you can't go back. It's only forward and that's it. And only with an, a pen that will bleed out if you stop. So you draw only with ink and you draw from life. So only from life. And everything from life is the rule. So not, don't set up something and try to just draw that. Draw literally everything like a machine. So sit down and draw the coffee cup on the table, then the table, and then maybe the flower, and then the picture on the wall, and the cabinet, and the dishes in the sink, and the cat next to the sink, and the fridge, and keep turning and go to your coffee shop or a restaurant or whatever and draw the server and the table and a couple and the picture frame and the whatever, the bathroom doors, the hallway, the room, the whatever. You just keep producing small drawings that are, I don't like to call call them bad because, I, again, I don't want to apply like moral to it, but it's not good or bad. That's the point. It's just a drawing. It just exists because you moved your hand around on paper. So it doesn't matter. And no one's going to see it. But what you will develop is a connection to, like, I mean, I can show you, I guess your reader, your list. I keep saying readers, your listeners won't see it. But like, that's my wife just on the couch, right? Or, nice. And you're just drawing everything that you see in front of you. You just, just produce drawing. And what will happen is, for me, it was like, oh, it was really hard to just produce one drawing. I was like, just do one drawing. So I did the one drawing. And I was like, great. Well, now do five drawings. And now do 10 drawings. Just the, you know, like I said, just like a machine, just the plant, the book, the series of books, the shelf, just produce with your hand and a pen and a pen that makes it impossible to make a perfect drawing because that is what you're learning. You can't, you're not going to just print reality. I mean, some people develop a skill that can, <laughs> that get that part, that gets so good at it, you know, and, um, but you, are not trying to just print reality. You know, you are trying to create wonky, interesting things and incorporate what would be considered a misstep or a mistake as part of it. You know, things are going to look wonky because you're probably not going to nail the perspective, but that's okay. Just keep going. It doesn't matter what it looks like and what it will become hopefully over time or what it has become for me was it becomes just do the one drawing to just do five drawings or just do try to do 10 in a week or try to do 20 in a week to fill a sketchbook a month. How many can you fill? How many can you complete and complete them sketchbook after sketchbook? And what will happen is you'll start to notice sketchbook after sketchbook. You'll look back and go, Oh wow. Like I've, you've greatly improved, you know, drafting wise. Mm -hmm. So I think even if you're into abstract or you're not, you don't care about realism and that's fine. That's just, it's not, it still helps to develop that relationship to drawing, to developing your drafting and your drawing 
and just sharpen that skill. It's just sharpening that skill. It is just like doing weights, you know, it's just something to do to develop the drafting skill. And that overlaps everything. All those lessons overlap everything. So you, you, the biggest lessons are getting better at drawing, which is more a byproduct than a lesson, because I don't want to imply that that matters, that somehow more accurate drawing is better. It's just a different kind of drawing. You will happen to get more accurate over time. But what you need to do is get past being attached to sketchbooks and papers and drawings and learn to be able to produce and produce even when you don't want to produce, if you want to produce. <laughs> Does that make, that yes. just make sense? If you want to make books or you want to make art, you've got to learn how to make it. You know, a chef has to learn how to make food and use the ingredients. And if you're not just making stuff, you can buy a cool chef's outfit, you know, and just stand in the kitchen kind of wiping the oven, but you're not going to make anything. If you want to make stuff, you got to make stuff. You've got to produce stuff. So this is just your, it's your heartbeat. It's, it's learning to integrate it into your life and also stretching your dexterity, which is also crucial to developing. I find, which is just, that's what I would consider the talent aspect of like, do I want to do this? Do I, do I have capacity to draw for a long period of time? You can develop it, you know, if you're like, I want to, but I'm tired. That's okay. You know, <laughs> it's not like, I'm not saying quit. If you get tired, I'm just saying you're going to get tired. So now what do you do and how then do you pivot and keep putting one foot in front of the other? I love that. I probably have a sketchbook. I could quote unquote sacrifice for <laughs> being my sixth sure. sketchup, but, but I do like, I don't post everything that I draw. And so, you know, probably half of what's in my sketchbook people haven't seen. Um, I do sure. agree that, you know, I've drawn my feet <laughs> in sure, socks yeah. on the couch so many times. Um, sure. And uh, I really like the idea of a secret sketchbook. I, I, I think that's exciting. I think we, I think as artists, we're also artist tool collectors. And so I'm sure yeah. we all have a sketchbook that we could use for right, this. Right, yeah. Exactly. I, I agree. The moleskin is really good paper uh, for both ink and, um, you know, whether yeah. it's fountain pen or ballpoint, it doesn't bleed through easily. Yeah, exactly. It's and, good enough. Yeah, exactly. To at least not, do that, you know. Yeah, they're not super expensive. And um, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's good. I love that. I love that homework. That's awesome. Cool. So, last point is we need people to be able to connect with you. So maybe if you can share where people sure. can find you online, that would be great. I, well, I, you know, I have a website. And, uh, and a link tree and all that, that funnels everything. But I've got, um, the main things are of course the, the YouTube channel and then the Instagram are sort of the main things I do, but I have a Twitter and I, I have of course the Patreon and stuff funneled through the website, jerrycullen.com. But, uh, YouTube is probably where I had the most sort of traction and, um, you know, community or whatever and Instagram. I'll, uh, I'm going to link directly but I'm to on, I'm on, all the, I'm on all the things except the new things. I haven't done the new things. Uh, cause I think I'm just at capacity, but, uh, I'm on all the things. <laughs> That's cool. I will, uh, I will link out directly to, uh, to the things and people sure. can uh, connect you through, uh, connect with you through the show notes. And, uh, I wanted to say, Jared, thank you so much. It's been insightful and inspiring I hope so. and, and uh, speaking with you. And, um, I'm, I'm just honored that you found the time to um, 
to come on and, and share your story and share your art and share your thoughts. It's been uh, it's been wonderful. I know the listeners will enjoy this. I think it's probably going to be the longest episode we've had, but I'm not going to really trim it down much. I'm, okay. I'm if you've made it this far, I thank you for listening. But I, I really think there's so much to this. And I think we need to hear these conversations, especially if, if you're in the midst of painting or drawing right now. I think hearing you know the words that we've been exchanging here is going to be important uh, to moving this forward. And I hope everyone has a great 2023. And uh, yeah. I think this is a great way to start it. So thank you, Jared, for coming on. Great. Thanks. It's an honor, honestly. And uh, I look, look forward to your other episodes. Listening to more. Well, thank you so much. This has been great, and thanks again, and uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks. Show notes, including links to everything Jared and I spoke about, can be found at drawinginspiration.fm slash 91. If you enjoyed the show, please follow, share, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. This will help surface the podcast for others to enjoy. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Be kind to yourself and each other, and keep drawing. Theme music for this podcast is Acid Jazz, provided by Kevin McLeod. Mm-hmm.